This is Audible. This audio edition of Quidditch Through the Ages includes over an hour and a half of exclusive bonus content, including J.K. Rowling's writing about the 2014 Quidditch World Cup, originally written for Pottermore.com, now brought to life for the very first time. Quidditch Through the Ages by Kenilworthy Wisp Read by Andrew Lincoln An audiobook production brought to you by Pottermore from J.K. Rowling With thanks to J.K. Rowling for creating this book and so generously giving all her royalties to Comic Relief and Lumos Forward by Albus Dumbledore Quidditch Through the Ages is one of the most popular titles in the Hogwarts School Library. Madame Pince, our librarian, tells me that it is poured about, dribbled on, and generally maltreated nearly every day. A high compliment for any book. Anyone who plays or watches Quidditch regularly will relish Mr. Wisp's book as do those of us interested in wider wizarding history. As we have developed the game of Quidditch, so it has developed us. Quidditch unites witches and wizards from all walks of life, bringing us together to share moments of exhilaration, triumph, and for those who support the Chudley Cannons, despair. It was with some difficulty, I must own, that I persuaded Madame Pince to part with one of her books so that it might be copied for wider consumption. Indeed, when I told her it was to be made available to muggles, she was rendered temporarily speechless and neither moved nor blinked for several minutes. When she came to herself, she was thoughtful enough to ask whether I had taken leave of my senses— I was pleased to reassure her on that point and went on to explain why I had taken this unprecedented decision. Muggle readers will need no introduction to the work of comic relief and Lumos. So I now repeat my explanation to Madame Pince for the benefit of witches and wizards who have purchased this book. Comic Relief harnesses laughter to fight poverty and injustice in a most imaginative way, using it to raise funds to help save and improve lives, a brand of magic to which we all aspire. Lumos, in turn, brings light to the darkest of places, revealing children hidden from the world and guiding them home. By buying this book, and I would advise you to buy it, because if you read it too long without handing over money, you will find yourself the object of a thief's curse. You too will be contributing to this magical mission. I would be deceiving my readers if I said that this explanation made Madame Pince happy about handing over a library book to muggles. She suggested several alternatives, such as telling the people from Comic Relief and Lumos that the library had burned down, or simply pretending that I had dropped dead without leaving instructions. When I told her that on the whole I preferred my original plan, 
She reluctantly agreed to hand over the book, though at the point when it came to let go of it, her nerve failed her and I was forced to prize her fingers individually from the spine. Although I have removed the usual library book spells from this volume, I cannot promise that every trace is gone. Madame Pince has been known to add unusual jinxes to the books in her care. I myself doodled absent-mindedly on a copy of Theories of Transubstantial Transfiguration last year, and next moment found the book beating me fiercely around the head. Please be careful how you treat this book. Do not rip out the pages. Do not drop it in the bath. I cannot promise that Madame Pince will not swoop down on you wherever you are and demand a heavy fine. All that remains is for me to thank you for supporting Comic Relief and Lumos, and to beg muggles not to try Quidditch at home. It is, of course, an entirely fictional sport, and nobody really plays it. May I also take this opportunity to wish Puddlemere United the best of luck next season. Albus Dumbledore Chapter 1 The Evolution of the Flying Broomstick No spell yet devised enables wizards to fly unaided in human form. Those few animagi who transform into winged creatures may enjoy flight, but they are a rarity. The witch or wizard who finds him or herself transfigured into a bat may take to the air, but having a bat's brain, they are sure to forget where they want to go the moment they take flight. Levitation is commonplace, but our ancestors were not content with hovering five feet from the ground. They wanted more. They wanted to fly like birds, but without the inconvenience of growing feathers. We are so accustomed these days to the fact that every wizarding household in Britain owns at least one flying broomstick that we rarely stop to ask ourselves why. Why should the humble broom have become the one object legally allowed as a means of wizarding transport? Why did we in the West not adopt the carpet so beloved of our Eastern brethren? Why didn't we choose to produce flying barrels, flying armchairs, flying bathtubs, why brooms? Shrewd enough to see that their muggle neighbors would seek to exploit their powers if they knew their full extent, witches and wizards kept themselves to themselves long before the international statute of wizarding secrecy came into effect. If they were to keep a means of flight in their houses, it would necessarily be something discreet, something easy to hide. The broomstick was ideal for this purpose. It required no explanation, no excuse if found by muggles. It was easily portable and inexpensive. Nevertheless, the first brooms bewitched for flying purposes had their drawbacks. Records show that witches and wizards in Europe were using flying broomsticks as early as AD 962. 
A German illuminated manuscript of this period shows three warlocks dismounting from their brooms with looks of exquisite discomfort on their faces. Guthrie Lochran, a Scottish wizard writing in 1107, spoke of the splinter-filled buttocks and bulging piles he suffered after a short broom ride from Montrose to Arbroath. A medieval broomstick on display in the Museum of Quidditch in London gives us an insight into Lochran's discomfort. A thick, knotty handle of unvarnished ash with hazel twigs bound crudely to one end, it is neither comfortable nor aerodynamic. The charms placed upon it are similarly basic. It will only move forwards at one speed. It will go up, down, and stop. As wizarding families in those days made their own brooms, there was enormous variation in the speed, comfort, and handling of the transport available to them. By the 12th century, however, wizards had learned to barter services so that a skilled maker of brooms could exchange them for the potions his neighbor might make better than himself. Once broomsticks became more comfortable, they were flown for pleasure rather than merely used as a means of getting from point A to point B. Chapter 2. Ancient Broom Games Broom sports emerged almost as soon as broomsticks were sufficiently advanced to allow flyers to turn corners and vary their speed and height. Early wizarding writings and paintings give us some idea of the games our ancestors played. Some of these no longer exist. Others have survived or evolved into the sports we know today. The celebrated annual broom race of Sweden dates from the 10th century. Flyers race from Kopperberg to Arieplog, a distance of slightly over 300 miles. The course runs straight through a dragon reservation, and the vast silver trophy is shaped like a Swedish short snout. Nowadays, this is an international event, and wizards of all nationalities congregate at Kopperberg to cheer the starters, then apparate to Arieplog to congratulate the survivors. The famous painting Gunther de Gewalte Tiger is de Gewinner, Gunther the Violent is the Winner, dated 1105, shows the ancient German game of stickstock. A 20-foot-high pole was topped with an inflated dragon bladder. One player on a broomstick had the job of protecting this bladder. The bladder guardian was tied to the pole by a rope around his or her waist, so that he or she could not fly further than 10 feet away from it. The rest of the players would take it in turns to fly at the bladder and attempt to puncture it with the specially sharpened end of their brooms. The bladder guardian was allowed to use his or her wand to repel these attacks. The game ended when the bladder was successfully punctured, or the bladder guardian had either succeeded in hexing all opponents out of the running, or collapsed from exhaustion. Stickstock died out in the 14th century. In Ireland, the game of Orngengain flourished, the subject of many an Irish ballad. The legendary wizard Fingal the Fearless is alleged to have been an Orngengain champion. One by one, the players would take the dom, or ball, 
actually the gallbladder of a goat, and speed through a series of burning barrels set high in the air on stilts. The dom was to be thrown through the final barrel. The player who succeeded in getting the dom through the last barrel in the fastest time without having caught fire on the way was the winner. Scotland was the birthplace of what is probably the most dangerous of all broom games, Kreakioen. The game features in a tragic Gaelic poem of the 11th century, the first verse of which says in translation, the players assemble twelve fine hearty men. They strapped on their calder and stood poised to fly. At the sound of the horn, they were swiftly airborne, but ten of their number were fated to die. Creacchio and players each wore a cauldron strapped to the head. At the sound of the horn or drum, up to a hundred charmed rocks and boulders that had been hovering a hundred feet above the ground began to fall towards the earth. The Kreakio and players zoomed around, trying to catch as many rocks as possible in their cauldrons. Considered by many Scottish wizards to be the supreme test of manliness and courage, Kreakioin enjoyed considerable popularity in the Middle Ages, despite the huge number of fatalities that resulted from it. The game was made illegal in 1762, and though Magnus Denthead MacDonald spearheaded a campaign for its reintroduction in the 1960s, the Ministry of Magic refused to lift the ban. Shunt bumps was popular in Devon, England. This was a crude form of jousting, the sole aim being to knock as many other players as possible off their brooms, the last person remaining on their broom winning. Swiven Hodge began in Herefordshire. Like Stickstock, this involved an inflated bladder, usually a pig's. Players sat backwards on their brooms and batted the bladder backwards and forwards across a hedge with the brush ends of their brooms. The first person to miss gave their opponent a point. First to reach 50 points was the winner. Swivenhodge is still played in England, though it has never achieved much widespread popularity. Shunt Bumps survives only as a children's game. At Queerditch Marsh, however, a game had been created that would one day become the most popular in the wizarding world. Chapter 3 The Game from Queerditch Marsh we owe our knowledge of the rude beginnings of Quidditch to the writings of the witch Gertie Kettle, who lived on the edge of Quidditch Marsh in the 11th century. Fortunately for us, she kept a diary, now in the Museum of Quidditch in London. The excerpts below have been translated from the badly spelled Saxon of the original. Tuesday, hot. That lot from across the marsh have been at it again playing a stupid game on their broomsticks. A big leather ball landed in my cabbages. I hexed the man who came for it. I'd like to see him fly with his knees on back to front the great hairy hog. Tuesday, wet, was out on the marsh picking nettles. Broomstick idiots playing again. Watched for a bit from behind a rock. They've got a new ball. 
throwing it to each other and trying to stick it in trees at either end of the marsh. Pointless rubbish! Tuesday. Windy. Gwennog came for nettle tea, then invited me out for a treat. Ended up watching those numbskulls playing their game on the marsh. That big Scottish warlock from up the hill was there. Now they've got two big heavy rocks flying around trying to knock them all off their brooms. Unfortunately, didn't happen while I was watching. Gwenog told me she often played herself. Went home in disgust. These extracts reveal much more than Gertie Kettle could have guessed, quite apart from the fact that she only knew the name of one of the days of the week. Firstly, the ball that landed in her cabbage patch was made of leather, as is the modern quaffle. Naturally, the inflated bladder used in other broom games of the period would be difficult to throw accurately, particularly in windy conditions. Secondly, Gertie tells us that the men were trying to stick it in trees at either end of the marsh. Apparently, an early form of goal scoring. Thirdly, she gives us a glimpse of the forerunners of bludgers. It is immensely interesting that there was a big Scottish warlock present. Could he have been a Kreakioan player? Was it his idea to bewitch heavy rocks, to zoom dangerously around the pitch, inspired by the boulders used in his native game? We find no further mention of the sport played on Queerditch Marsh until a century later, when the wizard Goodwin Neen took up his quill to write to his Norwegian cousin Olaf. Neen lived in Yorkshire, which demonstrates the spread of the sport throughout Britain in the hundred years after Gertie Kettle first witnessed it. Neen's letter is deposited in the archives of the Norwegian Ministry of Magic. Dear Olaf, how are you? I am well, though Gunhilde has got a touch of dragon pox. We enjoyed a spirited game of Quidditch last Saturday night, though poor Gunhilde was not up to playing catcher and we had to use Radolf the blacksmith instead. The team from Ilkley played well, though was no match for us, for we had been practicing hard all month and scored 42 times. Radolf got a blooder in the head because old Uger wasn't quick enough with his club. The new scoring barrels worked well. Three at each end on stilts. Una from the inn gave us them. She let us have free mead all night because we won as well. Gunhilda was a bit angry I got back so late. I had to duck a couple of nasty jinxes, but I've got my fingers back now. I'm sending this with the best owl I've got. Hope he makes it. Your cousin, Goodwin. Here we see how far the game has progressed in a century. Goodwin's wife was to have played catcher, probably the old term for chaser. The blooder, undoubtedly bludger, that hit Radolf the blacksmith should have been fended off by Uga, who was obviously playing beater as he was carrying a club. The goals are no longer trees, but barrels on stilts. One crucial element in the game was still missing, however. The golden snitch. The addition of the fourth Quidditch ball did not occur until the middle of the 13th century, and it came about in a curious manner. Chapter 4 
The Arrival of the Golden Snitch. From the early 1100s, Snidget hunting had been popular among many witches and wizards. The Golden Snidget is today a protected species. But at that time, golden snidgets were common in northern Europe, though difficult to detect by muggles because of their aptitude at hiding and their very great speed. The diminutive size of the snidget, coupled with its remarkable agility in the air and talent at avoiding predators, merely added to the prestige of wizards who caught them. A 12th-century tapestry, preserved in the Museum of Quidditch, shows a group setting out to catch a snidget. In the first portion of the tapestry, some hunters carry nets, others use wands, and still others attempt to catch the snidget with their bare hands. The tapestry reveals the fact that the snidget was often crushed by its captor. In the final portion of the tapestry, we see the wizard who caught the snidget being presented with a bag of gold. Snidget hunting was reprehensible in many ways. Every right-minded wizard must deplore the destruction of these peace-loving little birds in the name of sport. Moreover, snidget hunting, which was usually undertaken in broad daylight, led to more muggle broomstick sightings than any other pursuit. The wizard's council of the time, however, was unable to curb the sport's popularity. Indeed, it appears that the council itself saw little wrong with it, as we shall see. Snidget hunting finally crossed paths with Quidditch in 1269, at a game attended by the chief of the Wizards' Council himself, Barbarous Bragg. We know this because of the eyewitness account sent by Madame Modesty Rabnot of Kent to her sister Prudence in Aberdeen. This letter is also on display in the Museum of Quidditch. According to Madame Rabnot, Bragg brought a caged snidget to the match and told the assembled players that he would award 150 galleons to the player who caught it during the course of the game. Madame Rabnot explains what happened next. The players rose as one into the air, ignoring the quaffle and dodging the bludders. Both keepers abandoned the goal baskets and joined the hunt. The poor little snidgets shot up and down the pitch, seeking a means of escape, but the wizards in the crowd forced it back with repelling spells. Well, Prue, you know how I am about snidget hunting and what I get like where my temper goes. I ran onto the pitch and screamed, Chief Bragg, this is not sport! Let the snidget go free and let us watch the noble game of Quaditch, which we have all come to see. If you believe me, Prue, all the brute did was laugh and throw the empty birdcage at me. Well, I saw wet, Prue. I really did. When the poor little snidget flew my way, I did a summoning charm. You know how good my summoning charms are, Prue. Of course, it was easier for me to aim properly, not being mounted on a broomstick at the time. The little bird came zooming into my hand. I snuffed it down the front of my robes and ran like fury. Well, they caught me. But not before I got out of the crowds and released the snidget. Chief Bragg was very angry, and for a moment, I thought I'd end up a horned toad or worse. But luckily, his advisors calmed him down, and I was only fined ten galleons for disrupting the game. Of course, I've never had ten galleons in my life, so that's the old home gone. I'll be coming to live with you shortly. Luckily, they didn't take the hippogriff.
And I'll tell you this, Pooh. Chief Wag would have lost my vote if I'd had one. Your loving sister, Modesty. Madame Rabnot's brave action might have saved one Snidget, but she could not save them all. Chief Bragg's idea had forever changed the nature of Quidditch. Golden Snidgets were soon being released during all Quidditch games. One player on each team, the hunter, having the sole task of catching it. When the bird was killed, the game was over and the hunter's team was awarded an extra 150 points in memory of the 150 galleons promised by Chief Bragg. The crowd undertook to keep the Snidget on the pitch by using the repelling spells mentioned by Madame Rabnot. By the middle of the following century, however, golden Snidget numbers had fallen so low that the Wizards' Council, now headed by the considerably more enlightened Elfrida Clagg, made the golden Snidget a protected species, outlawing both its killing and its use in Quidditch games. The Modesty Rabnot Snidget Reservation was founded in Somerset, and a substitute for the bird was frantically sought to enable the game of Quidditch to proceed. The invention of the Golden Snitch is credited to the wizard Bowman Wright of Godric's Hollow. While Quidditch teams all over the country tried to find bird substitutes for the Snidget, Wright, who was a skilled metal charmer, set himself to the task of creating a ball that mimicked the behavior and flight patterns of the Snidget. That he succeeded perfectly is clear from the many rolls of parchment he left behind him on his death, now in the possession of a private collector, listing the orders that he had received from all over the country. The Golden Snitch, as Bowman called his invention, was a walnut-sized ball exactly the weight of a snidget. Its silvery wings had rotational joints like the snidgets, enabling it to change direction with the lightning speed and precision of its living model. Unlike the Snidget, however, the Snitch had been bewitched to remain within the boundaries of the field. The introduction of the Golden Snitch may be said to have finished the process begun 300 years before on Quidditch Marsh. Quidditch had been truly born. Chapter 5. Anti-Muggle Precautions In 1398, the wizard Zacharias Mumps set down the first full description of the game of Quidditch. He began by emphasizing the need for anti-Muggle security while playing the game. Choose areas of deserted moorland far from Muggle habitations and make sure that you cannot be seen once you take off on your brooms. Muggle repelling charms are useful if you're setting up a permanent pitch. It is advisable too to play at night. We deduce that Mump's excellent advice was not always followed. From the fact that the Wizards Council outlawed all Quidditch playing within 50 miles of towns in 1362. Clearly, the popularity of the game was increasing rapidly, for the Council found it necessary to amend the ban in 1368, making it illegal to play within a hundred miles of a town. In 1419, the council issued the famously worded decree that Quidditch should not be played anywhere near any place where there is the slightest chance that a muggle might be watching or will see how well you can play whilst chained to a dungeon wall. As every school-age wizard knows, 
The fact that we fly on broomsticks is probably our worst-kept secret. No muggle illustration of a witch is complete without a broom, and however ludicrous these drawings are, for none of the broomsticks depicted by muggles could stay up in the air for a moment, they remind us that we were careless for too many centuries to be surprised that broomsticks and magic are inextricably linked in the muggle mind. Adequate security measures were not enforced until the International Statute of Wizarding Secrecy of 1692 made every Ministry of Magic directly responsible for the consequences of magical sports played within their territories. This subsequently led, in Britain, to the formation of the Department of Magical Games and Sports. Quidditch teams that flouted the Ministry guidelines were henceforth forced to disband. The most famous instance of this was the Bankery Bangers, a Scottish team renowned not only for their poor Quidditch skills, but also for their post-match parties. After their 1814 match against the Appleby Arrows, see Chapter 7, the Bangers not only allowed their bludgers to zoom away into the night, but also set out to capture a Hebridean black for their team mascot. Ministry of Magic representatives apprehended them as they were flying over Inverness, and the Bankery Bangers never played again. Nowadays, Quidditch teams do not play locally, but travel to pitches which have been set up by the Department of Magical Games and Sports, where adequate anti-muggle security is maintained. As Zacharias Mumps so rightly suggested 600 years ago, Quidditch pitches are safest on deserted moors. Chapter 6. Changes in Quidditch since the 14th century. Pitch. Zacharias Mumps describes the 14th century pitch as oval-shaped, 500 feet long and 180 feet wide, with a small central circle, approximately 2 feet in diameter, in the middle. Mumps tells us that the referee, or quidjudge, as he or she was then known, carried the four balls into this central circle while the 14 players stood around him. The moment the balls were released, the quaffle was thrown by the referee, see the quaffle below, the players raced into the air. The goalposts in Mumps' time were still large baskets on poles. In 1620, Quintius Umfreville wrote a book called The Noble Sport of Warlocks, which included a diagram of the 17th century pitch. Here we see the addition of what we know as scoring areas. See rules below. The baskets on top of the goalposts were considerably smaller and higher than in Mumps' time. By 1883, baskets had ceased to be used for scoring and were replaced with the goalposts we use today, an innovation reported in the Daily Prophet of the time. The Quidditch pitch has not altered since that time. Bring back our baskets! That was the cry heard from Quidditch players across the nation last night as it became clear that the Department of Magical Games and Sports had decided to burn the baskets used for centuries for goal-scoring in Quidditch. We're not burning them, don't exaggerate, said an irritable-looking departmental representative last night when asked to comment. Baskets, as you may have noticed, come in different sizes. We have found it impossible to standardize basket size so as to make goalposts throughout Britain equal. Surely you could see it's a matter of fairness. 
I mean, there's a team up near Barnton. They've got these minuscule little baskets attached to the opposing team's posts. You couldn't get a grape in them. And up their own end, they've got these great wicker caves swinging around. It's not on. We've settled on a fixed hoop size, and that's it. Everything nice and fair. At this point, the departmental representative was forced to retreat under a hail of baskets thrown by the angry demonstrators assembled in the hall. Although the ensuing riot was later blamed on goblin agitators, there can be no doubt that Quidditch fans across Britain are tonight mourning the end of the game as we know it. It won't be the same without baskets, said one apple-cheeked old wizard sadly. I remember when I were a lad, we used to set fire to him for a laugh during the match. You can't do that with goal hoops. After the fun's gone. Daily Prophet, 12th of February, 1883. Balls, the Quaffle. As we know from Gertie Kettle's diary, the Quaffle was from earliest times made of leather. Alone of the four Quidditch balls, the Quaffle was not originally enchanted, but merely a patched leather ball, often with a strap, as it had to be caught and thrown one-handed. Some old Quaffles have finger holes, with the discovery of gripping charms in 1875, however, straps and finger holes have become unnecessary, as the chaser is able to keep a one-handed hold on the charmed leather without such aids. The modern quaffle is 12 inches in diameter and seamless. It was first colored scarlet in the winter of 1711, after a game when heavy rain had made it indistinguishable from the muddy ground whenever it was dropped. Chasers were also becoming increasingly irritated by the necessity of diving continually towards the ground to retrieve the quaffle whenever they missed a catch. And so, shortly after the quaffle's change of color, the witch Daisy Penifold had the idea of bewitching the quaffle so that if dropped, it would fall slowly earthwards as though sinking through water, meaning that chasers could grab it in midair. The Penifold quaffle is still used today. The Bludgers The first Bludgers, or Blooders, were, as we have seen, flying rocks. And in Mumps' time, they had merely progressed to rocks carved into the shape of balls. These had one important disadvantage, however. They could be cracked by the magically reinforced beater's bats of the 15th century, in which case all players would be pursued by flying gravel for the remainder of the game. It was probably for this reason that some Quidditch teams began experimenting with metal bludgers in the early 16th century. Agatha Chubb, expert in ancient wizarding artifacts, has identified no fewer than 12 lead bludgers dating from this period, discovered both in Irish peat bogs and English marshes. They are undoubtedly bludgers rather than cannonballs, she writes. The faint indentations of magically reinforced beater's bats are visible, and one can see the distinctive hallmarks of manufacture by a wizard as opposed to a muggle. The smoothness of line, the perfect symmetry. A final clue was the fact that each and every one of them whizzed around my study and attempted to knock me to the floor when released from its case. Lead was eventually discovered to be too soft for the purpose of bludger manufacture. Any indentation left on a bludger will affect its ability to fly straight, 
Nowadays, all bludgers are made of iron. They are ten inches in diameter. Bludgers are bewitched to chase players indiscriminately. If left to their own devices, they will attack the player closest to them. Hence, the beater's task is to knock the bludgers as far away from their own team as possible. The Golden Snitch The Golden Snitch is walnut-sized, as was the Golden Snidget. It is bewitched to evade capture as long as possible. There is a tale that a Golden Snitch evaded capture for six months on Bodmin Moor in 1884, both teams finally giving up in disgust at their Seeker's poor performances. Cornish wizards familiar with the area insist to this day that a snitch is still living wild on the moor, though I have not been able to confirm this story. Players The Keeper The position of Keeper has certainly existed since the 13th century, see Chapter 4 though the role has changed since that time. According to Zacharias Mumps, the keeper should be first to reach the gold baskets, for it is his job to prevent the quaffle entering therein. The keeper should beware of straying too far towards the other end of the pitch, in case his baskets come under threat in his absence. However, a fast keeper may be able to score a goal and then return to his baskets in time to prevent the other team equalizing. It is a matter for the individual conscience of the keeper. It is clear from this that in Mump's day, the keepers performed like chasers with extra responsibilities. They were allowed to move all over the pitch and to score goals. By the time Quintius Umfreville wrote The Noble Sport of Warlocks in 1620, however, the keeper's job had been simplified. The scoring areas had now been added to the pitch, and the keepers were advised to remain within them, guarding their goal baskets, though keepers may fly out of this area in an attempt to intimidate opposing chasers, or head them off early. The Beaters The duties of the beaters have changed little through the centuries, and it is likely that beaters have existed ever since the introduction of the bludgers. Their first duty is to guard their team members from the bludgers, which they do with the aid of bats, once clubs. See Goodwin Neen's letter in Chapter 3. Beaters have never been goal scorers, nor is there any indication that they have handled the quaffle. Beaters need a good deal of physical strength to repel the bludgers. This is therefore the position that, more than any other, has tended to be taken by wizards rather than witches. Beaters also need to have an excellent sense of balance, as it is sometimes necessary for them to take both hands from their brooms for a double-handed assault on a bludger. The Chasers Chaser is the oldest position in Quidditch, for the game once consisted wholly of goal-scoring. The Chasers throw the quaffle to each other and score ten points for every time they get it through one of the goal hoops. The only significant change in chasing came about in 1884, one year after the substitution of goal hoops for goal baskets. A new rule was introduced which stated that only the chaser carrying the quaffle could enter the scoring area. If more than one chaser entered, the goal would be disallowed. The rule was designed to outlaw stooging, sea fowls below. 
a move by which two chasers would enter the scoring area and ram the keeper aside, leaving a goal hoop clear for the third chaser. Reaction to this new rule was reported in the Daily Prophet of the time. Our chasers aren't cheating. That was the stunned reaction of Quidditch fans across Britain last night when the so-called stooging penalty was announced by the Department of Magical Games and Sports last night. Instances of stooging have been on the increase, said a harassed-looking departmental representative last night. We feel that this new rule will eliminate the severe keeper injuries we have been seeing only too often. From now on, one chaser will attempt to beat the keeper, as opposed to three chasers beating the keeper up. Everything will be much cleaner and fairer. At this point, the departmental representative was forced to retreat as the angry crowd started to bombard him with quaffles. Wizards from the Department of Magical Law Enforcement arrived to disperse the crowd, who were threatening to stooge the Minister for Magic himself. One freckle-faced six-year-old left the hall in tears. I love stooging. He sobbed to the Daily Prophet. Me and my dad like watching them keepers flattened. I don't want to go to Quidditch no more. Daily Prophet, 22nd of June, 1884. The Seeker. Usually the lightest and fastest flyers, seekers need both a sharp eye and the ability to fly one or no-handed. Given their immense importance in the overall outcome of the match, for the capture of the snitch so often snatches victory from the jaws of defeat, seekers are most likely to be fouled by members of the opposition. Indeed, while there is considerable glamour attached to the position of seeker, for they are traditionally the best flyers on the pitch, they are usually the players who receive the worst injuries. Take out the seeker is the first rule in Brutus Scrimger's The Beater's Bible. Rules The following rules were set down by the Department of Magical Games and Sports upon its formation in 1750. 1. Though there is no limit imposed on the height to which a player may rise during the game, he or she must not stray over the boundary lines of the pitch. Should a player fly over the boundary, his or her team must surrender the quaffle to the opposing team. 2. The captain of a team may call for time-out by signalling to the referee. This is the only time players' feet are allowed to touch the ground during a match. Time-out may be extended to a two-hour period if a game has lasted more than 12 hours. Failure to return to the pitch after two hours leads to the team's disqualification. 3. The referee may award penalties against a team. The chaser taking the penalty will fly from the central circle towards the scoring area. All players other than the opposing keeper must keep well back while the penalty is taken. 4. The quaffle may be taken from another player's grasp but under no circumstances must one player seize hold of any part of another player's anatomy. 5. In the case of injury, no substitution of players will take place. The team will play on without the injured player. 6. Wands may be taken onto the pitch, but must under no circumstances whatsoever be used against opposing team members. Any opposing team member's broom, the referee, any of the balls, or any member of the crowd. Note, 
The right to carry a wand at all times was established by the International Confederation of Wizards in 1692, when Muggle persecution was at its height and the wizards were planning their retreat into hiding. 7. A game of Quidditch ends only when the golden snitch has been caught, or by mutual consent of the two team captains. Fouls. Rules are, of course, made to be broken. 700 Quidditch fouls are listed in the Department of Magical Games and Sports records, and all of them are known to have occurred during the final of the first ever World Cup in 1473. The full list of these fouls, however, has never been made available to the wizarding public. It is the department's view that witches and wizards who see the list might get ideas. I was fortunate enough to gain access to the documents relating to these fouls while researching this book and can confirm that no public good can come of their publication. 90% of the fouls listed are, in any case, impossible as long as the ban on using wands against the opposing team is upheld. This ban was imposed in 1538. Of the remaining 10%, it's safe to say that most would not occur to even the dirtiest player. For example, setting fire to an opponent's broomtail, attacking an opponent's broom with a club, attacking an opponent with an axe. This is not to say that modern Quidditch players never break rules. Ten common fouls are listed below. The correct Quidditch term for each foul is given in the first column. Name, blagging, applies to all players. Description. Seizing opponent's broomtail to slow or hinder. Blatching. All players. Flying with intent to collide. Blurting. All players. Locking broom handles with a view to steering opponent off course. Bumping. Beaters only. Hitting bludger towards crowd, necessitating a halt of the game as officials rush to protect bystanders sometimes used by unscrupulous players to prevent an opposing chaser scoring. Cobbing. All players. Excessive use of elbows towards opponents. Flacking. Keepers only. Sticking any portion of anatomy through goal hoop to punch Quaffle out. The keeper is supposed to block the goal hoop from the front rather than the rear. Haversacking. Chasers only. Hand still on Quaffle as it goes through goal hoop. Quaffle must be thrown. Quaffle pocking. Chasers only. Tampering with Quaffle, e.g. puncturing it so that it falls more quickly or zigzags. Snitch nip. All players but Seeker. Any player other than Seeker touching or catching the golden snitch. Stooging. Chasers only. More than one chaser entering the scoring area. Referees. Refereeing a Quidditch match was once a task for only the bravest witches and wizards. Zacharias Mumps tells us that a Norfolk referee called Cyprian Udall died during a friendly match between local wizards in 1357. The originator of the curse was never caught, but is believed to have been a member of the crowd. 
While there have been no proven referee slayings since, there have been several incidences of broom tampering over the centuries. The most dangerous being the transformation of the referee's broom into a port key, so that he or she is whisked away from the match halfway through and turns up months later in the Sahara Desert. The Department of Magical Games and Sports has issued strict guidelines on the security measures relating to players' brooms, and these incidents are now, thankfully, extremely rare. The effective Quidditch referee needs to be more than an expert flyer. He or she has to watch the antics of 14 players at once, and the most common referee's injury is consequently neck strain. At professional matches, the referee is assisted by officials who stand around the boundaries of the pitch and ensure that neither players nor balls stray over the outer perimeter. In Britain, Quidditch referees are selected by the Department of Magical Games and Sports. They have to take rigorous flying tests and an exacting written examination on the rules of Quidditch and prove, through a series of intensive trials, that they will not jinx or curse offensive players even under severe pressure. Chapter 7 Quidditch Teams of Britain and Ireland The necessity for keeping the game of Quidditch secret from muggles means that the Department of Magical Games and Sports has had to limit the number of games played each year. While amateur games are permitted as long as the appropriate guidelines are followed, professional Quidditch teams have been limited in numbers since 1674, when the league was established. At that time, the 13 best Quidditch teams in Britain and Ireland were selected to join the league, and all others were asked to disband. The 13 teams continued to compete each year for the League Cup. Appleby Arrows This Northern English team was founded in 1612. Its robes are pale blue, emblazoned with a silver arrow. Arrows fans will agree that their team's most glorious hour was their 1932 defeat of the team who were then the European champions, the Vratza Vultures, in a match that lasted 16 days in conditions of dense fog and rain. The club's supporters' old practice of shooting arrows into the air from their wands every time the chasers scored was banned by the Department of Magical Games and Sports in 1894 when one of these weapons pierced the referee, Nugent Potts, through the nose. There is traditionally fierce rivalry between the arrows and the Wimborne wasps. See below. Ballycastle Bats Northern Ireland's most celebrated Quidditch team has won the Quidditch League a total of 27 times to date, making it the second most successful in the league's history. The Bats wear black robes with a scarlet bat across the chest. Their famous mascot, Barney the Fruit Bat, is also well known as the bat featured in Butterbeer advertisements. Barney says, I'm just batty about Butterbeer. Caffili Catapults The Welsh catapults, formed in 1402, wear vertically striped robes of light green and scarlet. Their distinguished club history includes 18 league wins and a famous triumph in the European Cup final of 1956, when they defeated the Norwegian Karashok Kites. 
the tragic demise of their most famous player, Dangerous Dai Llewellyn, who was eaten by a chimera while on holiday in Mykonos, Greece, resulted in a day of national mourning for all Welsh witches and wizards. The Dangerous Die commemorative medal is now awarded at the end of each season to the league player who has taken the most exciting and foolhardy risks during a game. Chudley Cannons The Chudley Cannons' glory days may be considered by many to be over, but their devoted fans live in hope of a renaissance. The Cannons have won the league 21 times, but the last time they did so was in 1892, and their performance over the last century has been lackluster. The Chudley Cannons wear robes of bright orange, emblazoned with a speeding cannonball and a double C in black. The club motto was changed in 1972 from We Shall Conquer to Let's all just keep our fingers crossed and hope for the best. Falmouth Falcons The Falcons wear dark grey and white robes with a falcon head emblem across the chest. The Falcons are known for hard play, a reputation consolidated by their world-famous beaters Kevin and Carl Broadmoor who played for the club from 1958 to 1969, and whose antics resulted in no fewer than 14 suspensions from the Department of Magical Games and Sports. Club motto, let us win, but if we cannot win, let us break a few heads. Hollyhead Harpies. The Hollyhead Harpies is a very old Welsh club, founded 1203 unique among Quidditch teams around the world because it has only ever hired witches. Harpy robes are dark green with a golden talon upon the chest. The Harpies' defeat of the Heidelberg Harriers in 1953 is widely agreed to have been one of the finest Quidditch games ever seen. Fought over a seven-day period, the game was brought to an end by a spectacular snitch capture by the harpy seeker Glynis Griffiths. The Harrier's captain, Rudolf Brand, famously dismounted from his broom at the end of the match and proposed marriage to his opposite number, Gwendolyn Morgan, who concussed him with her clean sweep five. Kenmare Kestrels. This Irish side was founded in 1291 and is popular worldwide for the spirited displays of their leprechaun mascots and the accomplished harp-playing of their supporters. The Kestrels wear emerald green robes with two yellow Ks back-to-back -back on the chest. Darren O'Hare, Kestrel keeper 1947-1960, to captained the Irish national team three times and is credited with the invention of the Chaser-Hawkshead attacking formation. See Chapter 10. Montrose Magpies The Magpies are the most successful team in the history of the British and Irish League, which they've won 32 times. Twice European champions, the Magpies have fans across the globe. Their many outstanding players include the seeker Eunice Murray, died 1942, who once petitioned for a faster snitch because this is just too easy, 
and Hamish McFarlane, captain 1957 to 1968, who followed his successful Quidditch career with an equally illustrious period as head of the Department of Magical Games and Sports. The magpies wear black and white robes with one magpie on the chest and another on the back. Pride of Portree. This team comes from the Isle of Skye, where it was founded in 1292. The Prides, as they are known to their fans, wear deep purple robes with a gold star on the chest. Their most famous chaser, Katrina McCormack, captained the team to two league wins in the 1960s and played for Scotland 36 times. Her daughter, Megan, currently plays keeper for the team. Her son, Curly, is lead guitarist with the popular wizarding band, The Weird Sisters. Puddlemere United Founded in 1163, Puddlemere United is the oldest team in the league. Puddlemere has 22 league wins and two European Cup triumphs to its credit. Its team anthem, Beat back those bludgers, boys, and chuck that quaffle here, was recently recorded by the singing sorceress Celestina Warbeck to raise funds for St. Mungo's Hospital for Magical Maladies and Injuries. Puddlemere players wear navy blue robes bearing the club emblem of two crossed golden bulrushes. Tuts Hill Tornadoes The Tornadoes wear sky blue robes with a double T in dark blue on the chest and back. Founded in 1520, the Tornadoes enjoyed their greatest period of success in the early 20th century, when, captained by seeker Roderick Plumpton, they won the League Cup five times in a row, a British and Irish record. Roderick Plumpton played seeker for England 22 times and holds the British record for fastest capture of a snitch during a game, three and a half seconds against Caerphilly Catapults, 1921. Wigtown Wanderers. This Borders Club was founded in 1422 by the seven offspring of a wizarding butcher named Walter Parkin. The four brothers and three sisters were, by all accounts, a formidable team who rarely lost a match, partly, it is said, because of the intimidation felt by opposing teams at the sight of Walter, standing on the sidelines with a wand in one hand and a meat cleaver in the other. A Parkin descendant has often been found on the Wigtown team over the centuries, and, in tribute to their origins, the players wear blood-red robes with a silver meat cleaver upon the chest. Wimborne Wasps The Wimborne Wasps wear horizontally striped robes of yellow and black with a wasp upon their chests. Founded in 1312, the Wasps have been 18 times league winners and twice semi-finalists in the European Cup. They are alleged to have taken their name from a nasty incident which occurred during a match against the Appleby Arrows in the mid-17th century when a beater flying past a tree on the edge of the pitch noticed a wasp's nest among the branches and batted it towards the arrow's seeker, who was so badly stung that he had to retire from the game. Wimborne won and thereafter adopted the wasp as their lucky emblem. Wasp fans, also known as stingers, 
traditionally buzz loudly to distract opposing chasers when they're taking penalties. Chapter 8. The Spread of Quidditch Worldwide Europe Quidditch was well established in Ireland by the 14th century, as proved by Zacharias Mump's account of a match in 1385. A team of warlocks from Cork flew over for a game in Lancashire and did offend the locals by beating their hero soundly. The Irishmen knew tricks with the quaffle that had not been seen in Lancashire before and had to flee the village for fear of their lives when the crowd drew out their wands and gave chase. Diverse sources show that the game had spread into other parts of Europe by the early 15th century. We know that Norway was an early convert to the game. Could Goodwin Neen's cousin Olaf have introduced the game there? because of the verse written by the poet Inglefor the Iambic in the early 1400s. Oh, the thrill of the chase as I saw through the air, with the snitch up ahead and the wind in my hair. As I draw ever closer, the crowd gives a shout. But then comes a bludger, and I am knocked out. Around the same time, the French wizard Malachry wrote the following lines in his play, Alas, Je me suis transfiguré les pieds. Alas, I've transfigured my feet. Grand oui. I cannot go with you to the market today, crapaud. Crapaud? But grand oui, I cannot carry the cow alone. Grand oui. You know, crapaud, that I am to be keeper this morning. Who will stop the quaffle if I do not? The year 1473 saw the first ever Quidditch World Cup, though the nations represented were all European. The non-appearance of teams from more distant nations may be put down to the collapse of owls bearing letters of invitation, the reluctance of those invited to make such a long and perilous journey, or perhaps a simple preference for staying at home. The final, between Transylvania and Flanders, has gone down in history as the most violent of all time, and many of the fouls then recorded had never been seen before. For instance, the transfiguration of a chaser into a polecat, the attempted decapitation of a keeper with a broadsword, and the release from under the robes of the Transylvanian captain of a hundred blood-sucking vampire bats. The World Cup has since been held every four years, though it was not until the 17th century that non-European teams turned up to compete. In 1652, the European Cup was established, and it has been played every three years since. Of the many superb European teams, perhaps the Bulgarian Vratza Vultures is most renowned. Seven times European Cup winners, the Vratza Vultures are undoubtedly one of the most thrilling teams in the world to watch. Pioneers of the long goal, shooting from well outside the scoring area, and always willing to give new players a chance to make a name for themselves. In France, the frequent league winners, the Quiberon Quaffle Punchers, are famed for their flamboyant play as much for their shocking pink robes. In Germany, we find the Heidelberg Harriers, the team that the Irish captain Darren O'Hare once famously said was fiercer than a dragon and twice as clever. 
Luxembourg, always a strong Quidditch nation, has given us the Bougainville Bombers, celebrated for their offensive strategies and always among the top goal scorers. The Portuguese team Braga Brumfleet have recently broken through into the top levels of the sport with their groundbreaking beta marking system. And the Polish Grodzisk Goblins gave us arguably the world's most innovative seeker, Józef Ronski. Australia and New Zealand. Quidditch was introduced to New Zealand sometime in the 17th century, allegedly by a team of European herbologists who had gone on an expedition there to research magical plants and fungi. We are told that after a long day's toil collecting samples, these witches and wizards let off steam by playing Quidditch under the bemused gaze of the local magical community. The New Zealand Ministry of Magic has certainly spent much time and money preventing muggles getting hold of Maori art of that period, which clearly depicts white wizards playing Quidditch. These carvings and paintings are now on display at the Ministry of Magic in Wellington. The spread of Quidditch to Australia is believed to have occurred sometime in the 18th century. Australia may be said to be an ideal Quidditch-playing territory, given the great expanses of uninhabited outback where Quidditch pitches may be established. Antipodean teams have always thrilled European crowds with their speed and showmanship. Among the best are the Motohora Macaws, New Zealand, with their famous red, yellow and blue robes and their phoenix mascot, Sparky. The Thundalara Thunderers and the Wollongong Warriors have dominated the Australian league for the best part of a century. Their enmity is legendary among the Australian magical community, so much so that a popular response to an unlikely claim or boast is, yeah, and I think I'll volunteer to ref the next Thunderer Warrior game. Africa. The broomstick was probably introduced to the African continent by European wizards and witches traveling there in search of information on alchemy and astronomy, subjects in which African wizards have always been particularly skilled. Though not yet as widely played as in Europe, Quidditch is becoming increasingly popular throughout the African continent. Uganda, in particular, is emerging as a keen Quidditch-playing nation. Their most notable club, the Patonga Proudsticks, held the Montrose Magpies to a draw in 1986 to the astonishment of most of the Quidditch-playing world. Six Proudstick players recently represented Uganda in the Quidditch World Cup, the highest number of flyers from a single team ever united on a national side. Other African teams of note include the Chumba Chalmers, Togo, Masters of the Reverse Pass, the Jimbi Giant Slayers, Ethiopia, twice winners of the All-Africa Cup, and the Sumbawanga Sunrays, Tanzania, a highly popular team whose formation looping has delighted crowds across the world. North America. Quidditch reached the North American continent in the early 17th century, although it was slow to take hold there owing to the great intensity of anti-wizarding feeling unfortunately exported from Europe at the same time. The great caution exercised by wizard settlers, many of whom had hoped to find less prejudice in the New World, tended to restrict the growth of the game in its early days. 
In later times, however, Canada has given us three of the most accomplished Quidditch teams in the world. The Moose Jaw Meteorites, the Haleybury Hammers, and the Stonewall Stormers. The Meteorites were threatened with disbandment in the 1970s owing to their persistent practice of performing post-match victory flights over neighboring towns and villages while trailing fiery sparks from their broom tails. The team now confines this tradition to the pitch at the end of each match, and Meteorite Games consequently remain a great wizarding tourist attraction. The United States has not produced as many world-class Quidditch teams as other nations because the game has had to compete with the American broom game Quadpot. A variant of Quidditch, Quadpot was invented by the 18th century wizard Abraham Peasgood, who had brought a quaffle with him from the old country and intended to recruit a Quidditch team. The story goes that Peasgood's quaffle had inadvertently come in contact with the tip of his wand in his trunk, so that when he finally took it out and began to throw it around in a casual manner, it exploded in his face. Peasgood, whose sense of humor appears to have been robust, promptly set out to recreate the effect on a series of leather balls. And soon, all thought of Quidditch was forgotten, as he and his friends developed a game which centered on the explosive properties of the newly renamed Quad. There are 11 players aside in the game of quad pot. They throw the quad, or modified quaffle, from team member to member, attempting to get it into the pot at the end of the pitch before it explodes. Any player in possession of the quad when it explodes must leave the pitch. Once the quad is safely in the pot, a small cauldron containing a solution which will prevent the quad exploding, the scorer's team is awarded a point and a new quad is brought onto the pitch. Quadpot has had some success as a minority sport in Europe, though the vast majority of wizards remain faithful to Quidditch. The rival charms of Quadpot notwithstanding, Quidditch is gaining popularity in the United States. Two teams have already broken through at international level. The Sweetwater All-Stars from Texas, who gained a well-deserved win over the Kiberon Quaffle Punchers in 1993 after a thrilling five-day match, and the Fitchburg Finches from Massachusetts, who have now won the U.S. League seven times, and whose seeker, Maximus Brankovic III, has captained America at the last two World Cups. South America Quidditch is played throughout South America though the game must compete with the popular quad pot here as in the north. Argentina and Brazil both reached the quarterfinals of the World Cup in the last century. Undoubtedly, the most skilled Quidditch nation in South America is Peru, which is tipped to become the first Latin World Cup winner within 10 years. Peruvian warlocks are believed to have had their first exposure to Quidditch from European wizards sent by the International Confederation to monitor the numbers of Vipertooths, Peru's native dragon. Quidditch has become a veritable obsession of the wizard community there since that time, and their most famous team, the Tarapoto Tree Skimmers, recently toured Europe to great acclaim. Asia Quidditch has never achieved great popularity in the East as the flying broomstick is a rarity in countries where the carpet is still the preferred mode of travel. 
the ministries of magic in countries such as India, Pakistan, Bangladesh, Iran and Mongolia, all of whom maintain a flourishing trade in flying carpets, regard Quidditch with some suspicion, though the sport does have some fans among witches and wizards on the street. The exception to this general rule is Japan, where Quidditch has been gaining steadily in popularity over the last century. The most successful Japanese team, the Toyohashi Tengu, narrowly missed a win over Lithuania's Gorodok Gargoyles in 1994. The Japanese practice of ceremonially setting fire to their brooms in case of defeat is, however, frowned upon by the International Confederation of Wizards Quidditch Committee as being a waste of good wood. Chapter 9. The Development of the Racing Broom Until the early 19th century, Quidditch was played on day brooms of varying quality. These brooms represented a massive advance over their medieval forerunners. The invention of the cushioning charm by Elliot Smethwick in 1820 went a long way towards making broomsticks more comfortable than ever before. Nevertheless, 19th century broomsticks were generally incapable of achieving high speeds and were often difficult to control at high altitudes. Brooms tended to be hand-produced by individual broom makers, and while they are admirable from the point of view of styling and craftsmanship, their performance rarely matched up to their handsome appearance. A case in point is the Oakshaft 79, so named because the first example was created in 1879. Crafted by the broom maker Elias Grimstone of Portsmouth, the oak shaft is a handsome broom with a very thick oaken handle, designed for endurance flying and to withstand high winds. The oak shaft is now a highly prized vintage broom, but attempts to use it for Quidditch were never successful. Too cumbersome to turn at high speed, the oak shaft never gained much popularity with those who prized agility over safety, though it will always be remembered as the broom used in the first ever Atlantic Broom Crossing by Jaconda Sykes in 1935. Before that time, wizards preferred to take ships rather than trust broomsticks over such distances. Apparition becomes increasingly unreliable over very long distances, and only highly skilled wizards are wise to attempt it across continents. The Moon Trimmer which was first created by Gladys Boothby in 1901, represented a leap forward in broom construction. And for a while, these slender, ash-handled brooms were in great demand as Quidditch brooms. The Moon Trimmer's principal advantage over other brooms was its ability to achieve greater heights than ever before and remain controllable at such altitudes. Gladys Boothby was unable to produce moon trimmers in the quantities Quidditch players clamoured for. The production of a new broom, the Silver Arrow, was welcomed. This was the true forerunner of the racing broom, achieving much higher speeds than the moon trimmer or oak shaft, up to 70 miles an hour with a tailwind. But like these, it was the work of a single wizard, Leonard Jukes, and demand far outstripped supply. 
the breakthrough occurred in 1926, when the brothers Bob, Bill, and Barnaby Ollerton started the Clean Sweep Broom Company. Their first model, the Clean Sweep One, was produced in numbers never seen before and marketed as a racing broom specifically designed for sporting use. The Clean Sweep was an instant runaway success cornering as no broom before it, and within a year, every Quidditch team in the country was mounted on clean sweeps. The Ollerton brothers were not left in sole possession of the racing broom market for long. In 1929, a second racing broom company was established by Randolph Keach and Basil Horton, both players for the Falmouth Falcons. The Comet Trading Company's first broom was the Comet 140, this being the number of models that Keach and Horton had tested prior to its release. The patented Horton-Keach breaking charm meant that Quidditch players were much less likely to overshoot goals or fly offside, and the Comet now became the broom of preference for many British and Irish teams in consequence. While the Clean Sweep Comet competition became more intense, marked by the release of the improved Clean Sweeps 2 and 3 in 1934 and 1937 respectively, and the Comet 180 in 1938, other broomstick manufacturers were springing up all over Europe. The Tinder Blast was launched on the market in 1940, produced by the Black Forest Company Ellaby and Spudmore, the Tinder Blast is a highly resilient broom, though it has never achieved the top speeds of the comets and clean sweeps. In 1952, Ellaby and Spudmore brought out a new model, the Swift Stick. Faster than the Tinder Blast, the Swift Stick, nevertheless, has a tendency to lose power in ascent and has never been used by professional Quidditch teams. In 1955, Universal Brooms Limited introduced the Shooting Star, the cheapest racing broom to date. Unfortunately, after its initial burst of popularity, the Shooting Star was found to lose speed and height as it aged, and Universal Brooms went out of business in 1978. In 1967, the broom world was galvanized by the formation of the Nimbus Racing Broom Company. Nothing like the Nimbus 1000 had ever been seen before. Reaching speeds of up to 100 miles per hour, capable of turning 360 degrees at a fixed point in mid-air, the Nimbus combined the reliability of the old Oakshaft 79 with the easy handling of the best clean sweeps. The Nimbus immediately became the broom preferred by professional Quidditch teams across Europe, and the subsequent models 1001, 1500, and 1700 have kept the Nimbus Racing Broom Company at the top of the field. The Twigger 90, first produced in 1990, was intended by its manufacturers, Flight and Barker, to replace the Nimbus as market leader. However, though highly finished and including a number of new gimmicks, such as an inbuilt warning whistle and self-straightening brush, the Twigger has been found to warp under high speeds and has gained the unlucky reputation of being flown by wizards with more galleons than sense. Chapter 10. Quidditch Today. 
The game of Quidditch continues to thrill and obsess its many fans around the world. Nowadays, every purchaser of a Quidditch match ticket is guaranteed to witness a sophisticated contest between highly skilled flyers. Unless, of course, the snitch is caught in the first five minutes of the match, in which case we all feel slightly shortchanged. Nothing demonstrates this more than the difficult moves that have been invented over its long history by witches and wizards eager to push themselves and the game as far as they can go. Some of these are listed below. Bludger Backbeat A move by which the beater strikes the bludger with a backbeat club swing, sending it behind him or her rather than in front. Difficult to bring off with precision, but excellent for confusing opponents. Doppelbeater Defense both beaters hit a bludger at the same time for extra power, resulting in a bludger attack of greater severity. Double eight loop. A keeper defense, usually employed against penalty takers, whereby the keeper swerves around all three goal hoops at high speed to block the quaffle. Hawkshead attacking formation. Chasers form an arrowhead pattern and fly together towards the goalposts highly intimidating to opposing teams and effective in forcing other players aside. Parkins Pincer So named for the original members of the Wigtown Wanderers, who are reputed to have invented this move. Two chasers close in on an opposing chaser on either side, while the third flies headlong towards him or her. Plumpton Pass Seeker move a seemingly careless swerve that scoops the snitch up one's sleeve. Named after Roderick Plumpton, Tutsil Tornado Seeker, who employed the move in his famous record-breaking snitch catch of 1921. Although some critics have alleged that this was an accident, Plumpton maintained until his death that he had meant to do it. Porskov ploy. The chaser, carrying the quaffle, flies upwards, leading opposing chasers to believe he or she is trying to escape them to score, but then throws the quaffle downwards to a fellow chaser waiting to catch it. Pinpoint timing is of the essence, named after the Russian chaser Petrova Porshkov. Reverse pass. A chaser throws the quaffle over one shoulder to a team member. Accuracy is difficult. Sloth grip roll. Hanging upside down off the broom, gripping tightly with hands and feet to avoid a bludger. Starfish and stick. Keeper defense. The keeper holds the broom horizontally with one hand and one foot curled around the handle, while keeping all limbs outstretched. The starfish without stick should never be attempted. Transylvanian tackle. First seen at the World Cup of 1473, this is a fake punch aimed at the nose. As long as contact is not made, the move is not illegal, though it is difficult to pull off when both parties are on speeding broomsticks. Wollongong Shimmy Affected by the Australian Wollongong Warriors, this is a high-speed zigzagging movement intended to throw off opposing chasers. 
Ronsky faint. The seeker hurtles towards the ground, pretending to have seen the snitch far below, but pulls out of the dive just before hitting the pitch, intended to make the opposing seeker copy him and crash. Named after the Polish seeker, Josef Ronsky. There can be no doubt that Quidditch has changed beyond all recognition since Gertie Kettle first watched those dub skulls on Quidditch Marsh. Perhaps, had she lived today, she too would have thrilled to the poetry and power of Quidditch. Long may the game continue to evolve, and long may future generations of witches and wizards enjoy this most glorious of sports. About the author. Kenilworthy Wisp is a renowned Quidditch expert, and he says fanatic. He is the author of many Quidditch-related works, including The Wonder of Wigtown Wanderers, He Flew Like a Madman, a biography of Dangerous Di Llewellyn, and Beating the Bludgers, a study of defensive strategies in Quidditch. Kenilworthy Wisp divides his time between his home in Nottinghamshire and wherever Wigtown Wanderers are playing this week. His hobbies include backgammon, vegetarian cookery, and collecting vintage broomsticks. Praise for Quidditch Through the Ages Kenilworthy Wisp's painstaking research has uncovered a veritable treasure trove of hitherto unknown facts about the sport of warlocks. A fascinating read. Matilda Bagshot, author, A History of Magic. Wisp has produced a thoroughly enjoyable book. Quidditch fans are sure to find it both instructive and entertaining. Editor, Witch Broomstick. The definitive work on the origins and history of Quidditch highly recommended. Brutus Scrimger, author, The Beater's Bible. Mr. Wisp shows a lot of promise. If he keeps up the good work, he may well find himself sharing a photo shoot with me one of these days. Gilderoy Lockhart, author, Magical Me. Bet you anything it'll be a bestseller. Go on, I betcha. Ludovic Bagman, England and Wimborne Wasps Beater. I've read worse. Rita Skeeter, Daily Prophet. Lumos, protecting children, providing solutions. There are 8 million children living in orphanages worldwide, even though 80% of them are not orphans. Most children are institutionalized because their parents are poor and cannot adequately provide for them. And while many institutions are established or supported with good intentions, more than 80 years of research proves that raising children in orphanages harms their health and development, increases their exposure to abuse and trafficking, and seriously reduces their chances of a happy, healthy future. Put simply, Children need families, not orphanages. Lumos, a charity founded by J.K. Rowling, is named after the light-giving spell from Harry Potter that brings light to the darkest of places. At Lumos, that is exactly what we do. We reveal the children hidden away in institutions and transform systems of care globally so that all children have the families they need and the futures they deserve. Thank you for buying this book. 
If you would like to join J.K. Rowling and Lumos as part of our global movement for change, you can find out how to get involved at wearelumos.org, at Lumos, and Facebook. Comic Relief UK Since 2001, Quidditch Through the Ages and Fantastic Beasts and Where to Find Them have raised nearly £20 million for comic relief. A magic amount of money that is already hard at work changing lives. Money raised through the sale of this new edition will be invested in children and young people around the world, preparing them to be ready for the future, to be safe, healthy, educated, and empowered. We are particularly interested in helping those children who start their lives in the most difficult circumstances, where there is conflict, violence, neglect, or abuse. Thank you for your support. To find out more about Comic Relief, go to comicrelief.com, follow us on Twitter at Comic Relief, or like us on Facebook. Welcome to our bonus section. You're about to enjoy a bit more Quidditch material, narrated for the first time for this audiobook. Here we explore the history of the Quidditch World Cup, written by J.K. Rowling in 2014 for Pottermore.com. We also take a look at some of the Daily Profits reports on the preliminary rounds of the 2014 Quidditch World Cup, also written by J.K. Rowling, via the voices of our two commentators, Ginny Potter and Rita Skeeter. There's a duo we weren't quite expecting. We do hope you enjoy feeling like you're listening to a real-life Quidditch match. History of the Quidditch World Cup According to the official guide to the Quidditch World Cup, produced by the International Confederation of Wizards Quidditch Committee, ICWQC, and available through all reputable wizarding bookstores for what many feel is the ridiculously overpriced sum of 39 galleons, the tournament has been held every four years since 1473. As with so much else about the wizarding world's most important sporting competition, many query the accuracy of this statement. As only European teams competed during the 15th and 16th centuries, purists prefer to date the Quidditch World Cup's inception from the 17th century, when it became open to all continents. There is also heated debate about the accuracy of some historical accounts of tournaments, a substantial amount of all post-game analysis centers on whether magical interference took place and whether it made or ought to have made the final result moot. The ICWQC has the unlucky job of regulating this contentious and anarchic competition. The rulebook concerning both on- and off-pitch magic is alleged to stretch to 19 volumes and to include such rules as... No dragon is to be introduced into the stadium for any purpose, including, but not limited to, team mascot, coach, or cup warmer. And modification of any part of the referee's body, whether or not he or she has requested such modification, will lead to a lifetime ban from the tournament and possibly imprisonment. A source of vehement disagreements, a security risk for all who attend it, and a frequent focus of unrest and protest, the Quidditch World Cup is simultaneously the most exhilarating sporting event on Earth and a logistical nightmare for the host nation. 
Statute of Secrecy. A watershed moment for the Quidditch World Cup was the implementation of the International Statute of Secrecy in 1692, which was intended to conceal the existence of magic and wizards. The International Confederation of Wizards, ICW, saw the Quidditch World Cup as a security risk of the highest magnitude because of the mass movement and congregation of so many members of the international wizarding community. However, following mass protests and threats to the ICW, it was agreed that the tournament could continue and a regulatory body, the ICWQC, was set up to locate suitable venues, usually remote moors, deserts and deserted islands. Arrange transportation for spectators, as many as a 100,000 routinely attend finals, and police the games themselves, a task generally agreed to be among the most thankless and difficult in the wizarding world. How the tournament works. The number of countries that enter a Quidditch team for each World Cup fluctuates from tournament to tournament. Where the wizarding population of a country is small, it can be difficult to raise a team of the required standard. But other factors, such as international conflict or disaster, may affect the entry numbers. However, any country may enter a team within the 12 months following the last final. Teams are then divided into 16 groups, within which every team plays all the others over a two-year period, until 16 winning teams remain. During the group phase, game length is capped at four hours to prevent player exhaustion. Inevitably, this means that some group games have no snitch catches, but are decided on goals alone. Any win in the group phase counts for two points. A win by more than 150 points earns an additional five points, by 100, an additional three points, and 50, one point. In the case of a tie on points, the winner is the team who caught the snitch most often or most quickly during its matches. The final 16 are ranked according to the points they won during the group phase. The team with the most points plays the team with least. The team with the second most points plays the team with the second least, and so on. In theory, the two best teams will remain to play each other in the final. Referees are chosen by the ICWQC. Infamous tournaments. No Quidditch World Cup is without its controversies, but some stand out. A few of the most infamous are listed below. Attack of the Killer Forest. The ghastly climax of the 1809 final between Romania and New Spain, what is now known as Mexico, has gone down in wizarding history as the worst exhibition of temper ever given by an individual player. Nico Nenard's teammates had become so concerned by his ferocious outbursts during the quarter and semi-finals that they tried to persuade their manager to substitute him for the final, advice that was sadly ignored by the ambitious old wizard. After the game, Nenard's teammate Ivan Popper, winner of an International Wizarding Order of Merit for his life-saving actions during the catastrophe, told an international inquiry, 
Over the preceding weeks, we'd seen Nico beat himself over the head with his broom and set fire to his own feet in frustration. I'd personally stopped him strangling two referees. However, I had no suspicion about what he was planning to do if the final didn't go our way. I mean, who'd suspect that? You'd have to be as mental as he was. Precisely when and how Nenad managed to jinx an entire forest on the edge of the West Siberian Plain is open to speculation. Although he is thought to have had accomplices among unprincipled fans and was later proven to have paid local dark wizards substantial sums. After two hours of play, Romania were behind on points and looking tired. It was then that Nenad deliberately hit a bludger out of the stadium into the forest beyond the pitch. The effect was instantaneous and murderous. The trees sprang to life, wrenched their roots out of the ground, and marched upon the stadium, flattening everything in their path, causing numerous injuries and several fatalities. What had been a Quidditch match turned swiftly into a human-versus-tree battle which the wizards won only after several hours' hard fighting. Nenad was not prosecuted, as he had been killed early on by a particularly violent spruce. The tournament that nobody remembers. The ICWQC insists that a tournament has been held every four years since 1473. This is a source of pride proving, as it does, that nothing, wars, adverse weather conditions, or muggle interference can stop wizards playing Quidditch. There is, however, a mystery surrounding the tournament of 1877. The competition was undoubtedly planned, a venue chosen, the Rin Desert in Kazakhstan, publicity materials produced, tickets sold. In August, however, the Wizarding World woke up to the fact that they had no memory whatsoever of the tournament taking place. Neither those in possession of tickets nor any of the players could remember a single game. However, for reasons none of them understood, English beater Lucas Bargeworthy was missing most of his teeth, Canadian seeker Angelus Peel's knees were on backwards, and half the Argentinian team were found tied up in the basement of a pub in Cardiff. Precisely what had or had not taken place during the tournament has never been satisfactorily proven. Theories range from a mass memory charm perpetuated by the Goblin Liberation Front, at that time very active and attracting a number of disaffected anarchist wizards, or the breakout of Cerebrumus spatagroit, a virulent substrain of the more common spatagroit, which causes severe confusion and memory impairment. In any case, it was deemed appropriate to restage the tournament in 1878, and it has been held every four years since, which accounts for the slight anomaly in the every four years since 1473 sequence. Royston Idlewind and the Dissimulators In 1971, the ICWQC appointed a new international director, Australian wizard Royston Idlewind. An ex-player who had been part of his country's World Cup winning team of 1966, 
he was nevertheless a contentious choice for international director due to his hardline views on crowd control, a stance undoubtedly influenced by the many jinxes he had endured as Australia's star chaser. Idlewind's statement that he considered the crowd the only thing I don't like about Quidditch did not endear him to fans. Their feelings turned to outright hostility when he proceeded to bring in a number of draconian regulations. The worst being a total ban on all wands from the stadium except those carried by ICWQC officials. Many fans threatened to boycott the 1974 World Cup in protest, but as empty stands were Idlewind's secret ambition, their strategy never stood a chance. The tournament duly commenced, and while crowd turnout was reduced, the appearance of dissimulators, an innovative new style of musical instrument, enlivened every match. These multicolored tube-like objects emitted loud cries of support and puffs of smoke in national colors. As the tournament progressed, the dissimulator craze grew, as did the crowds. By the time the Syria-Madagascar final arrived, the stands were packed with a record crowd of wizards, each carrying his or her own dissimulator. Upon the appearance of Royston Idlewind in the box for dignitaries and high-ranking officials, a hundred thousand dissimulators emitted loud raspberries and were transformed instantly into the ones they had been disguising all along. Humiliated by the mass flouting of his pet law, Royston Idlewind resigned instantly. Even the supporters of the losers, Madagascar, had something to celebrate during the rest of the long, raucous night. Reappearance of the Dark Mark Possibly the most infamous World Cup final of the last few centuries was the Ireland-Bulgaria match of 1994, which took place on Dartmoor, England. During the post-match celebrations of Ireland's triumph, there was an outbreak of unprecedented violence as supporters of Lord Voldemort attacked fellow wizards and captured and tortured local muggles. For the first time in 14 years, the dark mark appeared in the sky which caused widespread alarm and resulted in many injuries among the crowd. The ICWQC censured the Ministry of Magic heavily after the event, judging that security arrangements had been inadequate given the known existence of a violent, pure-blood tendency in the United Kingdom. Royston Idlewind emerged briefly from retirement to give the following statement to the Daily Prophet. A wand ban doesn't look so stupid now. Does it? Quidditch World Cup, 1990 to 2014. 1990. Canada, 270. Scotland, 240. A bitter disappointment for Scotland, whose seeker Hector Lamont missed catching the snitch by millimetres. In a post-match interview, Hector famously lambasted his father, Stubby Lamont, for not giving him longer fingers. 1994, Ireland 170, Bulgaria 160. The on-pitch action was very much overshadowed by the events that followed this match. A spectacular snitch capture by young seeker Victor Crum was enough to salvage Bulgarian dignity, but not to secure a win. 
1998. Malawi, 260. Senegal, 180. Only the second ever All-African final. Following the 1994 riots, security at this match was tighter than ever before. Senegal almost refused to play when their team mascots, Yumbos, were arrested outside the stadium. Yumbos are a kind of African house elf, and they took their arrest in reasonably good part, merely stealing every bit of food within a 10-mile radius in revenge and vanishing into the night. 2002. Egypt 450, Bulgaria 300. Another crushing disappointment for Bulgaria. Victor Krum was narrowly beaten to the snitch by the outstanding Egyptian seeker, Roya Zaglul. After the match, a tearful Krum announced his retirement. 2006. Burkina Faso 300, France 220. A popular win for the small African nation, whose seeker Joshua Sankara was promptly named Burkina Bay Minister for Magic. Two days later, he resigned, pointing out that he'd much rather play Quidditch. 2010. Moldova, 750. China, 640. A furiously contested match that lasted three days and was widely held to have produced some of the finest Quidditch seen this century. The tiny country of Moldova has consistently produced excellent Quidditch teams, and supporters were heartbroken that they failed to qualify this year due to an outbreak of dragonpox at their training camp. The Quidditch World Cup 2014 This year's Quidditch World Cup promises to be as exciting as ever. The 16 competing countries are Brazil, Bulgaria, Chad, Fiji, Germany, Haiti, Ivory Coast, Jamaica, Japan, Liechtenstein, New Zealand, Nigeria, Norway, Poland, USA, and Wales. Nigeria and Norway enter the tournament as the two highest-ranked teams. This is the first year that the USA is thought to have a reasonable chance of reaching the final. Much interest has been generated by the return to the Bulgarian side of the previously retired Viktor Krum, who at 38 is old for a seeker, but whose stated aim is to win the World Cup before I die. For this reason, Bulgaria is attracting support from those whose own countries have not qualified. Liechtenstein caused a serious upset in the qualifying stages by winning the group over last year's runners-up, China. Liechtenstein's team mascot is a gloomy, oversized augury called Hans, who has his own fan club. Other than this, nothing out of the ordinary has been reported. Rumors that Haiti have used in theory to intimidate opposing teams have been dismissed by the ICWQC as malicious and baseless. Accusations that Polish seeker Bonaventura Wojciech is actually the famous Italian seeker Luciano Volpi transfigured, were only disproven when Luciano Volpi agreed to a press conference by Wojcik's side. Welsh manager Gwenog Jones, formerly of the Hollyhead Harpies, threatened to curse the face off rival Brazilian manager Jose Barbosa when he called her chasers talentless hags, a comment he later insisted had been taken out of context. Opening games will take place next month in the Patagonian Desert.
Daily Profit, 12th of April, 2014. Disastrous opening ceremony leads to questions about Quidditch World Cup security. From the Daily Prophet's Quidditch correspondent in the Patagonian desert, Ginny Potter. Not a single quaffle thrown, not a single snitch caught, but the 427th Quidditch World Cup is already mired in controversy. Magi zoologists have congregated in the desert to contain the mayhem and healers have attended more than 300 crowd members suffering from shock, broken bones and bites. The Argentinian Council of Magic is reeling from accusations that their decision to stage a mascot-themed opening ceremony was foolish and reckless. In the weeks leading up to the opening, an impressive ornamental lake was created in the middle of the desert to accommodate the Fijian team's Dukawaka, a shark-man shapeshifter. Organisers announced that mascots representing the other teams participating in the first week's matches would take part in a choreographed display, advertised as a magnificent exhibition of the diversity of the magizoological world. The ceremony started in gentle style, with river genies from the Ivory Coast dancing in formation over the surface of the lake. It was only when the Fijian and Norwegian mascots were released that disaster struck. President of the Argentinian Council of Magic, Valentina Vasquez, has issued the following statement. While prepared for the arrival of the Fijian Dukawaka, we were surprised when the Norwegian delegation announced that they would also require lake space for a gigantic lake serpent, the Selma. We had assumed that the Norwegians would be accompanied by their usual troop of performing trolls. We are not aware that any study has ever been undertaken into the compatibility of Dukawakas and Selmas, so the Council of Magic cannot accept liability for the unfortunate consequences of placing the two in close proximity. Speaking exclusively to the Daily Prophet, Chief Consulting Magizoologist Rolf Scamander disagreed. The Dukawaka lives in a warm ocean the Selma in an icy freshwater lake. The former is a shapeshifter that can transform from fish to man. The latter is a serpent that devours human flesh and fish. You would need the brains of a billywig not to foresee an immediate bloodbath if both were crammed tightly together in tepid brackish water. A bloodbath is precisely what occurred when the two monsters were released into the magical lake through gigantic crystal chutes. Fijian and Norwegian handlers plunged into the seething waters to contain their respective mascots, but their efforts were greatly hampered by the Brazilian curipiras, red-haired forest-dwelling dwarves whose feet point backwards and who protect fellow creatures whom they feel are under threat from humans. Evidently believing that the handlers meant the Dukawaka and the Selma harm, the Kuripiras attacked. With panic in the stadium and blood now flowing freely from both humans and creatures, it was perhaps understandable that the Nigerian Sasabonsums, vampiric spindle-legged creatures, became crazed. As they wreaked havoc upon crowd and organisers, the rumour that the Haitian team had brought in theory as their mascots was proven true. 
The crowd stampeded as Inferi moved freely through the stadium, attempting to capture and devour anyone who tripped. Regulations on the size and nature of mascots have long been a source of debate at the highest levels of the ICWQC. A motion to restrict mascots to herbivores, creatures smaller than a cow, and nothing that breathes fire was defeated by an overwhelming majority in 1995. Quidditch supporters worldwide have been opposed to any meddling with what they see as a traditional, colourful part of the World Cup. However, many believe that competition among teams to bring the most intimidating mascot has got out of hand. Norwegian manager Arnulf Moe defended his decision to bring the Selma, which he said represented the steely determination and ferocity of the Norwegian players, and claimed that the Dukawaka bit first. A record crowd has been transported by 10,000 portkeys to the heart of the Patagonian desert for the opening weekend of the tournament. And while the Argentinian council has been widely praised for the flawless transportation arrangements, the record number of injuries sustained before the first whistle has been blown is sure to be an embarrassment to the organisers. The first game of the tournament will take place tomorrow. Norway versus Ivory Coast. First round matches. 13th of April, 2014. Norway versus Ivory Coast. From the Daily Prophet's Quidditch correspondent in the Patagonian desert, Ginny Potter. Joint favourites in this year's tournament, Norway today made short work of Ivory Coast, who were not playing at their often impressive best. The last time these sides met, the game lasted for five days. Today, the final whistle was blown in a little over two hours. Norway's resolve and discipline was impressive, given the level of hostility they faced from the crowd, many of whom were still bandaged following the Norwegian mascot's behaviour of yesterday. The match was twice halted whilst security wizards entered the stands to discover the source of jinxes sent at celebrated Norwegian chaser Lars Lundekvam. Ivoirian chaser Elodie Dembele, aged only 18, scored seven of Ivory Coast's ten goals. Norwegian seeker Sigrid Christofferson outraced her counterpart Sylvian Boigny to take the snitch in the 128th minute. Norway 340, Ivory Coast 100. 14th of May 2014, Nigeria versus Fiji. From the Daily Prophet's Quidditch correspondent in the Patagonian desert, Ginny Potter. Pity Fijian seeker Joseph Snooker as he tries to justify his side's bruising 400 to 160 defeat at the hands of tournament favourites Nigeria. In the early stages of the game, Fijian beaters Quintia Karase and Narinda Singh lacked the ferocity of their Nigerian counterparts, Aliko Okoye and Mercy Ojuku. The bludgers did serious damage to the Fijian chasers, who managed only a single goal during the first hour, compared with Nigeria's 40. 
To the bewilderment of commentators, the fury of Fijian supporters and the jeers of the Nigerians, Seeker Snooker chose to capture the snitch in the 141st minute when his team was trailing 400 to 10. Well, there is precedent for a seeker choosing to catch the snitch, if so doing will minimise the margin by which their team are about to lose, the most famous recent occasion being Victor Crumb's snitch capture in the 1994 final. Snooker's counterpart Samuel Equiano was some distance away when he chose to snatch the snitch from the air. Snooker has previously been dubbed an egoist by teammates and today's actions will do little to change his reputation. Fijian manager and trainer Hector Bolobolo's only comment after the match was, I'm going to kill him. Nigeria will face the winner of the Japan versus Poland match. Nigeria 400, Fiji 160. 15th of May, 2014, Brazil versus Haiti. From the Daily Prophet's Quidditch correspondent in the Patagonian desert, Ginny Potter. One of the oldest rules in Quidditch was violated in Haiti's match against Brazil, resulting in the first disqualification of the tournament. Haitian keeper Linnell Perez, on one of only three female keepers flying this tournament, was forced to justify her selection again and again during the early hours of the game, as Brazilian chasers Diaz, Alonso and Flores made as many as 30 assaults on the hoops. That they scored only 10 goals is testimony to Pereson's agility and courage, her nose was twice broken during the first 60 minutes, once by a ferocious bludger mishit by her own teammate, beater Jean-Baptiste Blancourt. At the other end of the pitch, star Haitian chaser Clavius Hippolyte was responsible for eight of his side's nine goals. In spite of Brazil's narrow lead in the fourth hour, many felt that the Haitian side was outplaying the Brazilians when Blancor made his second devastating mishit. The Haitian seeker Sylvian Jolicor was within inches of capturing the snitch when he was hit by another of Blancor's poorly aimed bludgers and knocked out cold. The snitch then flew up Blancor's sleeve, a rare but not unknown accident, only the seeker may capture the snitch, and any other player catching it will forfeit the game, is a tenet drummed into every schoolboy or girl who plays Quidditch. But Blancor appeared to lose his head at this point, wrestling the snitch out of his undergarments and holding it up triumphantly as though this would indemnify him for the blunders he had made. Haiti was instantly disqualified. Haitian seeker Jolicoeur is making a good recovery. Peter Blancor is currently in hiding at an undisclosed location. Brazil will face the winner of the Wales versus Germany match. Brazil 100, Haiti disqualified. 90 plus a legal capture of snitch. 16th of May 2014, USA versus Jamaica. From the Daily Prophet's Quidditch correspondent in the Patagonian desert, Ginny Potter. Yet more controversy in Patagonia. 
The outcome of the USA versus Jamaica clash is under investigation due to the sudden collapse of Kwanda Bailey, the Jamaican keeper who toppled from her broom shortly before US chaser Quentin Kowalski scored their ninth goal. Seconds after the referee successfully halted Bailey's groundwards plummet with a well-timed arresto momentum, US seeker Darius Smackhammer caught the snitch ahead of Jamaican counterpart Shanice Higgins, resulting in a narrow victory for the United States. The timing of Kwanda's sudden unconsciousness was so convenient that authorities are examining the possibility of crowd interference. Omnioculars from all over the stadium are being scrutinised for recorded evidence. The ICWQC has intimated that they will not be in a position to rule on the validity of the result until tomorrow. An amendment to the rules of Quidditch in 1849 stipulates that if a member of the crowd casts any jinx or spell on a player, their team will automatically forfeit the match, whether or not the team ordered or approved of the magic performed. USA 240, Jamaica 230, under investigation. 16th of May 2014. USA versus Jamaica. From the Daily Prophet's Quidditch correspondent in the Patagonian desert, Ginny Potter. Following an inquiry into the sudden and many felt suspicious collapse of Jamaican keeper Kwanda Bailey at a crucial point in yesterday's match against the USA, Kwanda is now confirmed to be suffering from an infected Sasabonsum vampiric Nigerian mascot, Bite, sustained during the opening ceremony. No crowd interference has been uncovered, and therefore the USA will pass into the quarterfinals, where they will play the victor of the Chad versus Liechtenstein match. USA 240, Jamaica 230. Result officially confirmed. 17th of May 2014. Liechtenstein versus Chad. From the Daily Prophet's Quidditch correspondent in the Patagonian desert, Ginny Potter. The longest match of the tournament so far is in its 11th hour, and players have broken for a short sleep. The two teams seem evenly matched, and every goal has been hard won against beaters who on both sides are showing superb precision and power. The snitch has been within catching range on three occasions, but on each, well-hit bludgers have prevented a resolution. Man of the match so far is undoubtedly Liechtenstein chaser Willy Wenzel, who took two bludgers to the head in the early stages of the game and still managed to score the third goal of the match from a distance of 60 yards. Chad 140, Liechtenstein 120. Ongoing. 18th of May 2014. Liechtenstein versus Chad. From the Daily Prophet's Quidditch correspondent in the Patagonian desert, Ginny Potter. As the second day of this match limped to a close, players were beginning to show signs of severe fatigue. The snitch was literally hovering above Chadian seeker Jacques Miskeen's left eyebrow for five minutes before he noticed it. 
And even then, his reactions were so slow it managed to make an escape. Liechtenstein chaser Ottmar Frick is believed to have literally fallen asleep on his broom shortly before play was stopped for the evening. Still too close to call, this match is turning into a true epic of the 2014 Quidditch World Cup. Liechtenstein 260, Chad 250, ongoing. 19th of May 2014, Liechtenstein versus Chad. From the Daily Prophet's Quidditch correspondent in the Patagonian desert, Ginny Potter. The end, when it finally came, was sudden and brutal. In the third day of the gruelling match, and with Chad just ahead on goals, exhausted Liechtenstein seeker Bruno Brunhart managed to grab the snitch inches from the outstretched hand of Jacques Miskin. Both teams wept and embraced as they finally reached solid ground. All are now receiving medical treatment. Liechtenstein will now face the USA in the quarterfinals. Liechtenstein 470, Chad 330. 20th of May 2014, Bulgaria versus New Zealand. From the Daily Prophet's Quidditch correspondent in the Patagonian desert, Ginny Potter. New Zealand manager Charlie Baverstock proclaimed himself madder than a bloke who's been locked in a box of whoopers after Dennis Moon was sent off in the 106th minute. This loss was undoubtedly a crucial factor in New Zealand's 410 to 170 loss to a Bulgarian side that many feel was lucky to qualify at all. The mid-air collision of chasers Moon and Bogomilevsky appeared accidental from many parts of the stadium. However, referee Georgios Zanakis was better positioned and judged that Moon had deliberately caused the crash. Whether or not Zanakis was influenced by rumours that Moon and Levsky have a long-standing feud, his decision undoubtedly turned the match in Bulgaria's favour. Twice runners-up in the last 50 years, the current Bulgarian side showed flashes of inspiration as they racked up an impressive score against the six strong Kiwis. Two players, Levski and Volkanov, had fathers in the 1994 side that introduced an 18-year-old Victor Crum to the world. One of the headline stories of the current World Cup is, of course, Crum's re-emergence from retirement. At 38, he is the oldest player in the competition and has faced stiff criticism for taking the place of a younger player on what some have called sentimental grounds. However, Crum's capture of the snitch ahead of 21-year-old Ngarpo Panika unquestionably showed traces of his old brilliance and delighted the Bulgarian supporters. Bulgaria will play joint favourites Norway in the quarterfinals. Bulgaria 410, New Zealand 170. 21st of May 2014, Japan versus Poland. From the Daily Prophet's Quidditch correspondent in the Patagonian desert, Ginny Potter. 
tight, well-fought game of Quidditch resulted in a well-deserved win for Japan, who emerged the victors with 350 points to Poland's 140. The final score does not reflect Poland's spirited and dynamic play, but the inexperience of this young side showed as they were put under considerable pressure by veteran Japanese beaters Hongo and Shingo, recently voted second only to legendary 1994 Bulgarians Volkov and Volkanov as all-time best beater duo. Polish seeker Vladislav Wolfka is one to watch. A daring and graceful flyer, he was unlucky to miss the snitch early in the game and was only narrowly beaten to it in the 59th minute by the gifted Noriko Sato. Japan will play joint favourites Nigeria in the quarterfinals. Japan 350, Poland 140. 22nd of May 2014, Wales versus Germany. From the Daily Prophet's Quidditch correspondent in the Patagonian desert, Ginny Potter. Germany versus Wales today gave a horrible reminder of the perils of seekership. The Ronsky feint is a dangerous move, whereby the seeker pretends to have spotted the snitch and performs a vertical dive, attempting to lure his or her counterpart into imitating them, pulling out at the last moment and leaving their opponent to crash. German seeker Thorsten Pfeffer today attempted the life-threatening feint with awful consequences, failing to pull out in time and colliding with the ground at what onlookers estimated to be 60 miles an hour. Healers flooded the pitch and Skelligro was administered at the scene. Thankfully, Pfeffer survived the match and manager Francisca Faust later told the assembled reporters that he is likely to make a complete recovery, although he has broken most of the bones in his body and currently believes himself to be a budgerigar called Klaus. Welsh seeker Eirig Cadwallader caught the snitch 11 minutes after Pfeffer was stretched off the field. But neither players nor crowd were in a celebratory mood, and only once she had heard that Pfeffer would survive did manager Gwenog Jones pronounce herself to be bloody delighted. Her team will face Brazil in the quarterfinals. Wales 330, Germany 100. Quarter-final matches. 4th of June, 2014. Brazil versus Wales. From the Daily Prophet's Quidditch correspondent in the Patagonian desert, Ginny Potter. The first quarter-final of the tournament has proved to be the most contentious game so far this tournament. One which began in bad blood and ended in a brawl that saw Welsh manager Gwenog Jones dragged from the pitch by her own beaters. The Brazil-Wales grudge began in the early days of the tournament when Brazilian manager Jose Barbosa allegedly called the Welsh chasers talentless hags over a few drinks with loose-lipped veteran journalist Rita Skeeter. His insistence that he had been joking did nothing to quell the ire of Welsh manager Gwenog Jones, who threatened to curse the face off him. In spite of the ICWQC's ban on managerial trash talk, 
a band that many believe to have been created with Grenog in mind, Jones has missed no opportunity to belittle and insult the Brazilians ever since learning that her team would face them in the quarterfinals. She was even prevented from entering the stadium in an it-should-have-been-Haiti t-shirt. Brazil passed into the quarterfinals when opponents Haiti were disqualified, so missed the opening ten minutes of the match, which were notable for the ferocity of play and three brutal fouls. Brazilian chasers Diaz, Alonso and Flores put in a solid performance and should be commended for keeping their heads when all about them were losing theirs, in the case of keeper Raul Almeida, almost literally. The viciousness of the bludger sent his way by Welsh beater Jeffen Rice, the quaffle was at the other end of the pitch at the time, earned Brazil a penalty and arguably should have seen Rice sent off. Nevertheless, Wales's play was not confined to fouls. Few will disagree that Welsh chaser Jackie Jernigan scored one of the tournament's most stunning goals from a distance of 50 yards, while it is estimated that beater Darren Floyd single-handedly prevented at least 17 Brazilian goals. Wales's chances were finally dashed by a stunning snitch capture by Brazilian seeker Tony Silva, who performed a spectacular dive in the 131st minute of the match to seize victory from under his counterpart Irig Cudwallader's nose. Gwenog Jones is in custody this evening, having attempted to make good her promise to curse off Barbosa's face in full view of a packed stadium. Healers report that Barbosa's skin has almost regrown and he is said to be in excellent spirits. Brazil will face the winner of the USA versus Liechtenstein match in the semi-finals. Brazil 460, Wales 300. 6th of June 2014, Bulgaria versus Norway. From the Daily Prophet's Quidditch correspondent in the Patagonian desert, Ginny Potter. In one of the biggest upsets of the tournament, the Bulgarian side, who many considered lucky to have qualified, has ousted one of the joint favourites. Norway now fly home asking themselves how things could have gone so wrong so quickly. Bulgaria, whose first match was made considerably easier for them when New Zealand's team was reduced to six after ascending off, showed good form straight off the whistle. Nikola Vasileva was responsible for both of Bulgaria's early goals, but Norway's last Lundekvam soon equalised. The end came almost without warning. Victor Crumb's sudden descent looked like simple bludger avoidance and Norwegian seeker Sigrid Christofferson not only neglected to mark him but was actually looking the other way when Crum raised his right hand to show that he had secured a Bulgarian victory in the 42nd minute. Few will fail to sympathise with Christofferson, who flew directly to the ground and banged her head on it until dragged to her feet by keeper Carl Vang. Crum who has been written off by many journalists as too old and slow to compete at 38 years old, was born from the pitch in triumph by fans. Heartbroken Norwegian coach Odvar Spillum had no comment for reporters, but broken sobs. 
There can be no doubt that this has been a deeply unlucky tournament for the usually outstanding Norwegians. However irrational it may seem, many fans blamed the Selma, a Norwegian lake monster that the team brought as a mascot and which caused a bloodbath at the opening ceremony. The Selma is tonight hiding in a secret location. Bulgaria 170, Norway 20. 8th of June, 2014. USA versus Liechtenstein. From the Daily Prophet's Quidditch correspondent in the Patagonian desert, Ginny Potter. If muggles haven't noticed the celebrations currently piercing the Patagonian night, we must assume that in addition to being non-magical, they are also remarkably stupid. The USA is through to the semi-finals of the Quidditch World Cup and as I write this report, Argentinian officials are storming through both the supporters' encampment and the players' quarters, attempting to quell the kind of jubilation more commonly associated with the final. The US has historically put up a poor show in international Quidditch, being the only country to have embraced the, frankly, odd game of quadpot. Today marks the US's maturation into a true force of the wizarding world's most popular sport. Though some may suggest that Liechtenstein entered the match at a disadvantage, having competed in a three-day epic against Chad, the team appeared fully recovered as they entered the stadium. Early play was fast and competitive, with quaffle possession almost equal. US chaser Quentin Kowalski drew plaudits from all commentators for his deft weaving and rolling, although Liechtensteiner heartthrob Ottmar Frick, the rugged man of Rugel, was the game's top scorer with 16 goals. Top plaudits must go to American seeker Darius Smackhammer, who secured the US's place in an historic semi-final in the 148th minute. His was a daring snitch capture that involved a breakneck dash through the crossfire of both bludgers and risked collision with hefty Liechtenstein chaser Willy Wenzel to tweak the snitch hovering near Wenzel's left ankle. Red, white and blue sparks are currently so thick in the air that it is both difficult to breathe or see. A harried official high in the ICWQC told the Daily Prophet shortly after the match, if this is what they do when they get into the semis, imagine what we're facing if they reach the final. I'm thinking security trolls. USA 450, Liechtenstein 290. 8th of June, 2014. USA versus Liechtenstein. Late breaking news. From the Daily Prophet's Quidditch correspondent in the Patagonian desert, Ginny Potter. High-spirited American fans celebrating their team's historic triumph in the quarterfinals have kidnapped Hans, the Liechtenstein mascot. Hans, a large and gloomy augury, a rain-predicting vulture-like bird, has gained a devoted fan following during the tournament. 
Liechtenstein coach and manager Ferdinand Jegendorf has issued the following statement. Das finden wir nicht lustig. We don't find that funny. 9th of June, 2014. Return of Hans the Augury. The Liechtenstein mascot is tonight back in his customised pen. But not before negotiations for his return reached the highest levels. Highly placed sources can confirm that the Liechtenstein Minister for Magic and the President of MACUSA, Magical Congress of the United States of America, exchanged terse owls concerning the whereabouts of Hans, who was kidnapped by enthusiastic American fans following their victory over Liechtenstein in the quarterfinals. We are delighted to report that this prank has ended in a friendly and cooperative fashion, announced President Samuel G. Quahog, and trust that Hans is none the worse for his little adventure. We are very pleased that the Americans have returned our beloved mascot, said Minister Otto Obermeyer. Magi zoologists are currently keeping Hans under close observation for ill effects. If any are discovered, we will, of course, lobby the ICWQC for the USA's immediate disqualification from the World Cup. A harried ICWQC official responded, Look, we've had to perform mass memory charms on about 2,000 muggles living on the edge of the desert after the American celebrations last night, and don't get me started on the plains. I'm not telling the Americans they're going home. Not doing it. Just feed the birds some fairies and leave me alone. 10th of June, 2014. Japan versus Nigeria. From the Daily Prophet's Quidditch correspondent in the Patagonian desert, Ginny Potter. A World Cup full of surprises yielded yet another this afternoon as the second of the tournament's favourites crashed out of the competition, yielding to the might of a Japanese side that put in a near-flawless performance. This match ought to be remembered as the Battle of the Beaters because these two outstanding Quidditch nations put on a veritable masterclass of bludger work, the precision and creativity of shots hit by Okoye and Ojuku on the one hand and Shingo and Hongo on the other framed the action, demonstrating that beaters, so often caricatured as thugs with bats, can be artists too. The turning point of the game was undoubtedly the staggeringly powerful shot hit by Hongo, which smashed the tail off Nigerian seeker Equiano's broom. As Equiano span out of control, Noriko Sato soared through the middle of the action to seize the snitch from the midst of distracted Nigerian players intent on saving their teammate. Japan pass into the semi-finals where they will meet Bulgaria. The Nigerians have been riding the controversial Thunderbolt 7, a competitor to the Firebolt series, which many experts feel has sacrificed safety for speed. Professional brooms ought to be able to withstand all bludger blows, and an inquiry is already underway. 
Rumours that a posse of Nigerian warlocks is currently heading for the Thunderbolt headquarters in Manchester, England, have not been confirmed. Japan 270, Nigeria 100. Semi-final matches. 4th of July 2014. USA versus Brazil. From the Daily Prophet's Quidditch correspondent in the Patagonian desert, Ginny Potter. For the second time in this tournament, it looks like a game will run through the night and possibly beyond. If one word summarises this semi-final so far, it is... nerves. Careless errors have littered the match, undoubtedly because a place in the final means so much to both sides. The USA has already climbed higher in the tournament than they have ever managed before, and 2014 will mark their emergence as a major force in the sport. Meanwhile, Brazil, a once great side who have lost their way in recent years, are fighting for their first final since 1982. The stakes are high, and it is perhaps not to be wondered at that players are showing signs of pressure. We have seen more quaffle drops than in any match so far, with US chaser Mercy Wardwell so frustrated by her fifth fumble that she beat her head repeatedly against her broom handle until restrained by seeker Darius Smackhammer. Yet Wardwell was not alone. Even Fernando Diaz and Alejandro Alonso, two of Brazil's finest, allowed the quaffle to slip through their fingers twice apiece. Several mishit bludgers have injured the beaters' own teammates. When Lucas Pickery sent the bludger into the face of keeper Susan Blanchflower in the fourth hour of the game, she risked further injury by attempting to jump onto Pickery's broom to remonstrate with him. Cautioned by the referee, Blanchflower was the next to make an elementary error when she came too far out of the scoring circle, allowing Alonso to slip past and sneak a goal that took Brazil ten points ahead, although not for long. Quentin Kowalski scored twice as night fell, giving the US a narrow lead, but this is still anyone's game as darkness thickens. USA 120, Brazil 100. Ongoing. 5th of July 2014. USA vs Brazil. From the Daily Prophet's Quidditch correspondent in the Patagonian desert, Ginny Potter. As the sun rose in Patagonia, two tired but determined teams seemed more focused and disciplined after a night of gruelling play. Here we saw the reason that both teams reached the semi-finals. Dynamic quaffle play between two exciting chaser trios could still have swung the match either way. But Brazilian keeper Raul Almeida made all the difference, repeatedly repelling American assaults on the goal hoops. Darius Smackhammer spotted the snitch in the 20th hour of the game, but a pair of precision-hit bludgers, courtesy of Brazilian beaters Santos and Clodoaldo, drove him off course. The crowd rose as one as Smackhammer and Brazilian Seeker Silver raced each other, both sliding to the very handles of their brooms. 
As the pair spiraled towards the ground, it was initially hard to see who had triumphed. Silver's subsequent breakneck dash towards the scoreboard could have been suicidal or triumphant. But it was swiftly apparent that Brazil had won. An epic semi-final has ended in thrilling style. Brazil will face either Japan or Bulgaria in the final, while the USA will play the loser to decide third place. Brazil 420, USA 310. 6th of July, 2014. Bulgaria versus Japan. From the Daily Prophet's Quidditch correspondent in the Patagonian desert, Ginny Potter. One minute before walking out onto the pitch for the second of this year's semi-finals, Bulgarian beater Boris Volkanov told me, We've been underdogs all through this tournament. We have nothing to lose and everything to win. We'll leave everything out there. And nobody could deny that they did. If there is any consolation for the Japanese, who have been outstanding throughout this tournament and who have given the wizarding world two new icons in beaters Shingo and Hongo, it is that they participated in a semi-final that will long live in memory, one of the highest scoring of recent years and a display of utterly thrilling Quidditch. As expected, Shingo and Hongo dominated the early part of the game. Play was stopped twice for healers to attend to the Bulgarian team, six of whom were bleeding from the head within an hour of Quaffle-off. Then came a triple display of sportsmanship that nobody who witnessed it will soon forget. With bludgers still flying like cannonballs, Volkanov deliberately interposed his body to protect teammate and seeker Crumb, who was in hot pursuit of the snitch. Volkanov was knocked out cold and fell from his broom, only to be caught and saved by Japanese seeker Noriko Sato. Seeing that Sato was unable to pursue the snitch, Crumb pulled up and did not capitalise on his momentary advantage. Crumb, Sato and Volkanov, once revived, were given a standing ovation by all spectators as play resumed. While the Japanese defence has rightly drawn plaudits from all corners of the Quidditch world, the work of chasers Ryuichi Yamaguchi, Kimiko Kurosawa and Yoshi Wakahisa should not be overlooked. By the eighth hour of the game, the Japanese were 250 points ahead. In spite of trailing badly, the Bulgarians took everything Shingo and Hongo were throwing at them. The Bulgarians' play was not pretty, but their guts could not be doubted. The snitch appeared for the second time, and Crumb raced Sato, driving her off but refusing to catch it. It was a mark of faith in his team and a sharp contrast to the infamous catch of the 94 final, where he had brought the game to an end to spare his side further humiliation at the hands of the Irish. This was the true turning point of the match. The Bulgarians now chipped slowly away, finally drawing level by sheer persistence and a much improved defensive performance. Then, in the 10th hour, the extraordinary reversal. 
Crumb performed a magnificent piece of diversionary flying that led Sato to believe he was avoiding Hongo's sightline, and before the crowd or his fellow players realised what was happening, Crumb caught the snitch. Such was the crowd's astonishment that there was a ten-second silence throughout the stadium before the Bulgarian supporters even dared cheer. Their celebrations continue as I write, but only the most hard-hearted could fail to sympathise with the Japanese, who now face the USA in the playoff for third place. Bulgaria 610, Japan 460. 8th of July, 2014. Dumbledore's army reunites at Quidditch World Cup final by the Daily Prophet's gossip correspondent, Rita Skeeter. There are celebrities, and then there are celebrities. We've seen many a famous face from the wizarding world grace the stands here in the Patagonian desert. Ministers and presidents, Celestina Warbeck, controversial American wizarding band, the bent-winged snitches, all have caused flurries of excitement, with crowd members scrambling for autographs and even casting bridging charms to reach the VIP boxes over the heads of the crowd. But when word swept the campsite and stadium that a certain gang of infamous wizards, no longer the fresh-faced teenagers they were in their heyday, but nevertheless recognisable, had arrived for the final, excitement was beyond anything yet seen. As the crowd stampeded, tents were flattened and small children moaned down. Fans from all corners of the globe stormed towards the area where members of Dumbledore's army were rumoured to have been sighted, desperate above all else for a glimpse of the man they still call the Chosen One. The Potter family and the rest of Dumbledore's army have been given accommodation in the VIP section of the campsite, which is protected by heavy charms and patrolled by security warlocks. Their presence has ensured large crowds along the cordoned area, all hoping for a glimpse of their heroes. At 3pm today they got their wish when, to the accompaniment of loud screams, Potter took his young sons, James and Albus, to visit the player's compound, where he introduced them to Bulgarian seeker Victor Crumb. About to turn 34, there are a couple of threads of silver in the famous Aura's black hair, but he continues to wear the distinctive round glasses that some might say are better suited to a star-deficient 12-year-old. The famous lightning scar has company. Potter is sporting a nasty cut over his right cheekbone, Requests for information as to its provenance merely produce the usual response from the Ministry of Magic. We do not comment on the top-secret work of the Aura Department, as we have told you no less than 514 times, Ms. Skeeter. So what are they hiding? Is the Chosen One embroiled in fresh mysteries that will one day explode upon us all, plunging us into a new age of terror and mayhem? Or does 
does his injury have a more humble origin, one that Potter is desperate to hide? Has his wife perhaps cursed him? Are cracks beginning to show in a union that the Potters are determined to promote as happy? Should we read anything into the fact that his wife, Ginevra, has been perfectly happy to leave her husband and children behind in London whilst reporting on this tournament? The jury is out on whether she really had the talent or experience to be sent to the Quidditch World Cup. Jury's back in. No. But let's face it, when your last name is Potter, doors open, international sporting bodies bow and scrape, and daily profit editors hand you plum assignments. As their devoted fans and followers will remember, Potter and Crumb competed against each other in the controversial Triwizard Tournament, but apparently there are no hard feelings as they embraced upon meeting. What really happened in that maze? Speculation is unlikely to be quelled by the warmth of their greeting. After half an hour's chat, Potter and his sons returned to the campsite where they socialised with the rest of Dumbledore's army until the small hours. In the next tent are Potter's two closest associates, the ones who know everything about him and yet have always refused to talk to the press. Are they afraid of him? Or is it their own secrets they are afraid will leak out, tarnishing the myth of he who could not be named's defeat? Now married, Ronald Weasley and Hermione Granger were with Potter almost every step of the way. Like the rest of Dumbledore's army, they fought in the Battle of Hogwarts and no doubt deserve the plaudits and awards for bravery heaped upon them by a grateful wizarding world. In the immediate aftermath of the battle, Weasley, whose famous ginger hair appears to be thinning slightly, entered into employment with the Ministry of Magic alongside Potter, but left only two years later to co-manage the highly successful wizarding joke emporium, Weasley's Wizard Wheezes. Was he, as he stated at the time, delighted to assist my brother George with a business I've always loved, or had he had his fill of standing in Potter's shadow? Was the work of the Aura Department too much for a man who has admitted that the destruction of he who could not be named's Horcruxes took its toll on him? He shows no obvious signs of mental illness from a distance, but the public is not allowed close enough to make a proper assessment. Is this suspicious? Hermione Granger, of course, was always the femme fatale of the group. Press reports of the time revealed that as a teenager she toyed with the young Potter's affections before being seduced away by the muscular Victor Crumb, finally settling for Potter's faithful sidekick. After a meteoric rise to deputy head of the Department of Magical Law Enforcement, she is now tipped to go even higher within the Ministry and is also mother to son Hugo and daughter Rose. Does Hermione Granger prove that a witch really can have it all? No. Look at her hair. Then there are those members of Dumbledore's army who receive slightly less publicity than Potter, Weasley and Granger. Are they resentful? 
almost certainly. Neville Longbottom, now a popular herbology teacher at Hogwarts School of Witchcraft and Wizardry, is here in Patagonia with his wife, Hannah. Until recently, the pair lived above the Leaky Cauldron in London. But rumour has it that Hannah has not only retrained as a healer, but is applying for the job of matron at Hogwarts. Idle gossip suggests that she and her husband both enjoy a little more Ogden's old fire whisky than most of us would expect from custodians of our children. But no doubt we all wish her the best of luck with her application. Last of the ringleaders of Dumbledore's army is, of course, Luna Lovegood, now married to Rolf Scamander, swarthy grandson of celebrated magizoologist Newt. Still delightfully eccentric, Luna has been sweeping around the VIP section in robes composed of the flags of all 16 qualifying countries. Her twin sons are at home with Grandpa. Is this a euphemism for too disturbed to be seen in public? Surely only the unkindest would suggest so. Sundry other members of the army are here, but it is on these six that most interest is focused. Wherever there is a redhead, one may make an educated guess that it belongs to a Weasley, but it is difficult to tell whether it is George, wealthy co-manager of Weasley's Wizard Wheezes, Charlie, Dragon Wrangler, still unmarried, why? Or Percy, head of the Department of Magical Transportation. It's his fault if the flu network's too busy. The only one who is easy to recognise is Bill, who, poor man, is grievously scarred from an encounter with a werewolf, and yet somehow... Enchantment? Love potion? Blackmail? Kidnap? Married? The undeniably beautiful, though doubtless empty-headed, Fleur Delacour. Word is that we shall see these and other members of Dumbledore's army in the VIP boxes at the final, adding to the glitz and razzmatazz of a gala occasion. Let us hope that the behaviour of two of their younger hangers-on does not embarrass them, heaping shame on those who have previously brought honour to the name of wizard. One always hesitates to invade the privacy of young people, but the fact is that anyone closely connected with Harry Potter reaps the benefits and must pay the penalty of public interest. No doubt Potter will be distressed to know that his 16-year-old godson, Teddy Lupin, a lanky half-werewolf with bright blue hair, has been behaving in a way unbefitting of wizarding royalty since arriving on the VIP campsite. It might be asking too much that the always-busy Potter keep a tighter rein on this wild boy, who was entrusted to his care by his dying parents. But one shudders to think what would become of Master Lupin without urgent intervention. Meanwhile, Mr and Mrs Bill Weasley might like to know that their beautiful blonde daughter, Victoire, seems to be attracted to any dark corner where Master Lupin happens to be lurking. The good news is both of them seem to have invented a method of breathing through their ears. 
I can think of no other reason how they have survived such prolonged periods of what, in my young day, was called snogging. But let us not be severe. Harry Potter and his cohorts never claim to be perfect. And for those who want to know exactly how imperfect they are, my new biography, Dumbledore's Army, The Dark Side of the D-Mob, will be available from Flourish and Blots on July 31st. Final matches. 9th of July, 2014. Playoff for third place. From the Daily Prophet's Quidditch correspondent in the Patagonian desert, Ginny Potter. It was brief, it was bloody, and few will disagree that it was brutal. Japan, who many thought would go all the way in this tournament, and the USA, for whom 2014 has been a breakthrough year, have both had remarkable World Cups. All 14 players in this third-place playoff can hold their heads high tonight, though for some... Notably, American chaser Arsenio Gonzalez, who took two bludgers to the face in the 34th minute, it will be extremely painful. The USA did well to score 12 times against keeper Todoroki, an undersung hero of the Japanese side who was on superb form, while beaters Hongo and Shingo were simply unstoppable. At the other end of the pitch, chasers Yamaguchi, Kurosawa and Wakahisa put 18 goals past keeper Susan Blancheflower, before Japanese seeker Noriko Sato put in one of the most spectacular dives of the tournament. Zooming through flying bludgers and a tangle of chasers, she successfully seized the snitch from under the heel of American Mercy Wardwell, leaving Darius Smackhammer in a broomlock with Lucas Pickery. Once on the ground, the teams embraced in a heartwarming show of sportsmanship. Word has since reached us that the Japanese have presented the American team, whose supporters famously kidnapped Hans the Augury, the Liechtenstein mascot, with a hoo-hoo chick. The hoo-hoo is a Japanese firebird. Japan 330, USA 120. Eleventh of July, twenty fourteen. We join Ginny Potter and gossip correspondent Rita Skeeter for the final: Bulgaria versus Brazil. The stadium is full, and the noise is deafening. We await the arrival of both teams' mascots who will put on a pre-match show. The Bulgarians, of course, bring their celebrated dancing troupe of velas, which constitutes a major reason for the team's popularity, at least with men. Brazil's Curipiras have already caused a great deal of mischief so far this tournament, but are similarly popular, mostly with children. Security wizards stand by all around the perimeter in case of trouble. While we wait for the opening performance, let's remind ourselves what these teams look like and compare some key statistics. Brazil. 
goalkeeper Raul Almeida. After a slow start in the tournament, Brazilian Almeida was a star of the lengthy semi-final against the USA and is a major reason for his team's presence in the final. However, many felt his opposite number on the Haitian side outperformed him in Brazil's first match and he sustained a nasty head injury in the contentious quarter-final against Wales. Chasers Alejandro Alonso, Fernando Diaz, Gonzalo Flores. The Brazilian trio have been one of the joys of the tournament. Exciting to watch and responsible for 68 goals so far. Gonzalo Flores has emerged as one of his team's stars, celebrated for making the hoops from way out of the scoring box. Beaters, Carlos Clodoaldo, Rafael Santos. Although they turned in lacklustre performances during the first two matches of the tournament, the Brazilian beaters redeemed themselves in spectacular style during the semi-final, when by their efforts they prevented the American Seeker Smackhammer catching the snitch. Seeker Tony Silver. Silver has only made two captures during the tournament, due to Haiti's disqualification in the first round. Once he spots the snitch, he is fast and accurate, but questions must be asked about his ability to locate the elusive golden ball, as his average capture time this tournament has been 10 hours, 44 minutes. Bulgaria. Keeper Georgi Zdravko. Zdravko let in 17 goals against New Zealand in the first round, and no fewer than 46 against Japan in the semi-final. Bulgarian fans are rightly nervous about Stravko's abilities facing a Brazilian chaser trio of proven ability. Chasers. Stoyanka Grozda, Bogomil Levski, Nikola Vasileva. Though less flashy in style, the statistics do not lie. The Bulgarian chasers have scored 74 goals so far this tournament and have, to the surprise of many fans and commentators, outperformed their Brazilian counterparts. Beaters Demita Draganov, Boris Volkanov. A competent, though not outstanding duo, Draganov and Volkanov have nevertheless displayed great physical courage throughout the tournament. Volkanov was knocked out cold, protecting his seeker during one of the most memorable moments of the Bulgaria versus Japan semi-final. Seeker, Victor Krum. Victor Krum needs no introduction. The oldest player in this tournament, he has been a world-class Quidditch player since his late teens. Though before this World Cup, many critics had written him off, he is largely responsible for Bulgaria's place in the final. Average capture time this tournament, 5 hours, 56 minutes. The VIP boxes are now full. Chairman of the ICWQC, Mentor Metaxas, chats to the president of the Argentinian Council of Magic, Valentina Vasquez. But all eyes are on box two, where Dumbledore's army sit under close guard to prevent mobbing by an overexcited crowd. 
The Potter family, minus mother, Ginny Potter, who, of course, is here in the journalist's enclosure with me, have been given prime places in the front row. All are wearing the red of Bulgaria, except middle child, Albus, who is sporting Brazilian green. This will undoubtedly send the gossips into overdrive. What message is young Albus sending us all by choosing to support a team other than his father's? A team, lest we forget, that he's competing against his father's ex-rival, now friend, Victor Crumb. Are we witnessing a very public, very ugly display of father-son rivalry? My colleague, Ginny Potter, who is sitting close enough to read everything my quick quotes quill is scribbling, informs me that Albus is a great fan of Brazilian chaser Gonzalo Flores. That, of course, would be one possible explanation for this oddly public parade of familial descent. as the gates open and the mascot troops assemble. First, the Bulgarian Venus, dressed in diaphanous gowns and dancing to the haunting strains of harp music. Several men's jaws have dropped here in the journalist's enclosure, and judging by the number of drops notebooks, many also appear to have lost sensation in their fingers. Up in VIP box two, Ronald Weasley appears to have become catatonic. Did I just see wife Hermione Granger administer a sharp elbow to the ribs? And here come the Curipiras with their bright red hair and back to front feet. Tumbling, performing acrobatics, stealing hats from fans and generally creating mayhem, the stadium is greatly enjoying their antics. It is always enchanting to observe young people enjoying the culture of other wizarding nations. Unfortunately, Master Teddy Lupin and Miss Victoire Weasley appear to be far more interested in what they are saying to each other than... Oh, I take that back. In what some may see as a somewhat belated show of parental authority, Mr. Bill Weasley has swapped places with his now very sulky-looking daughter and is directing her attention to the pitch. It is indeed a terrible waste not to drink in the magnificent spectacle now unfolding before us with the colours and dancing and whatnot. <laughs> Harry Potter is scratching his ear. The opening ceremony concludes with an interesting Vila Curipira pyramid formation. If several back-to-front feet found themselves in the Vila's eyes, the latter have resisted the temptation to transform into the terrifying harpy-like form that gave many children, myself included, nightmares after their 1994 display. And here come the two teams. Brazil in green, Bulgaria in red! Almost all of the Weasley family are supporting Brazil. Certainly nobody can have expected Ronald to cheer on his wife's ex-boyfriend. Both his children, Rose, who appears to have inherited her father's unfortunate hair, and Hugh 
Hugo has his mother's bushy locks decked out in green. But Hermione Granger is not wearing anything to indicate which team she is supporting. Does she secretly hope to see Crumb take the trophy at last? Or is this the kind of diplomatic neutrality one might expect of a ruthless careerist whose long-term ambition is undoubtedly to be Minister for Magic? And they're off! 14 players rise into the air for the 427th Quidditch World Cup Final. Neville Longbottom is already on his feet, cheering, even though nothing has really happened yet. <laughs> is he drunk? The Croffle is in Brazil's possession, but slick defence from Draganov and Vulkanov has so far prevented them from scoring. Flores, Diaz and Alonso are relentless, ducking and weaving as they try to find a way past the Bulgarian beaters. Luna Lovegood appears to be passing out some kind of snack to her friends in the VIP box. Some might hesitate to accept baked goods from Lovegood, whose schoolgirl nickname, I am reliably informed, was Looney. <laughs> An excellent intercept by Bulgarian Chaser Levski, and Bulgaria are streaking towards the goal. Thrown to the even the Brazilians groaned in sympathy there, as a bludger hit Vasileva hard in the throat. She drops the quaffle, which is caught by Flores. Brazil are back in possession. Never Longbottom is laughing hard at something that Harry Potter's leaned across and whispered to him. What is so amusing? Why such an open display of humour in full view of the public? Surely Potter is aware that everybody in the stadium can see him. Is it not rather elitist to enjoy private jokes with fellow celebrities when people in the cheap seats cannot hear them? And it's first blood to Brazil with a spectacular goal from Flores. Albus Potterus almost toppled out of the VIP box cheering his Quidditch hero. His uncle, Ronald, seized the back of his robes and saved him from what would surely have been a death of international significance. Spawning news stories across the wizarding world. <gasps> brother James is laughing heartily. Did he push his brother? Harry Potter appears completely unconcerned, merely handing his second son one of Looney Lovegood's treats. Draganov and Volkanov are successfully disrupting the Brazilian chasers, preventing the formidable trio from scoring a second goal. But Bulgaria is relying far too much on their defence, and their last touch of the quaffle resulted in a drop and fumble by Grozda. No sign of the snitch so far. Harry Potter is cheering every well-hit Bulgarian bludger, whereas his supposed best friend, Ron Weasley, appears to be gnashing his teeth in chagrin. Hermione Granger is yawning. Whether she intends to convey boredom or is merely exhausted after Dumbledore's army's long night of noisy revelry in the VIP section of the campsite, 
Her Argentinian hosts can only be offended by such blatant rudeness. Bogomilevsky breaks through the Brazilian defence and equalises! Ten all! Head of the Department of Magical Transportation, Percy Weasley, is frowning as he follows the match. Raying and balding, he has aged considerably since the Battle of Hogwarts, where, of course, he became the unfortunate embodiment of the phrase, better late than never. Unkind political opponents may call him a nitpicking bureaucrat, but others go as far as to say that he is not that bad once you get to know him. A sudden burst of quick-fire quaffle passes has resulted in a brace of goals for Brazil, whose chases are tearing up and down the pitch. Gonzalo Flores has scored twice more, and Fernando Diaz once, taking the score to 40-10. Bulgaria are making too many careless mistakes and need to take the offensive. Brazil looking far the stronger team at this point. Charlie Weasley, or the unmarried Weasley, as he is often known, is a burly chap carrying several burns due to his work with dragons. Like his sister-in-law, Hermione Bordion Granger, he's paying little attention to the match, preferring what seems to be a most interesting talk with Rolf's commander, husband of Looney Lovegood. How difficult it has been to marry into Dumbledore's army, we can only speculate. Nobody who witnessed it will ever forget the shock on Scamander's face when he saw Lovegood's wedding dress. Rainbows, spangles and a tiara of silver unicorn horns. Voted most hideous outfit of the year by readers of my regular Daily Prophet column. While Lovegood and Scamander appear to be holding hands in the VIP box, this might well be because Rolf is trying to prevent his wife from putting on one of her famous special event hats. The snitch has been sighted! With the score standing at 50-20, following goals one minute apart from Alonso and Vasileva, a flash of gold near the Brazilian hoops leads Silva and Karma into a breakneck chase. Beaters and chasers scatter. Karma's ahead, but narrowly misses a capture. As the snitch roars upwards, both seekers appear to be dazzled by the brilliant Argentinian sun. Ah, uh, the snitch has disappeared again. George Weasley, wealthy co-owner of joke shop Weasley's Wizard Wheezes, has only one ear. This disability did not prevent him from marrying his dead brother's ex-girlfriend, Angelina Johnson, or from fathering two children with her, Fred and Roxanne. They are putting on a show of family togetherness up in the box, however... Few will forget the recent rumours that, in spite of the plentiful gold brought in by such inventions as puking pastels, Angelina has grown restless in her marriage and recently left the marital home to... My colleague, Ginny Potter, has just informed me that Angelina left the marital home to care for her sick 
father. Many will think that a likely story. Meanwhile, Teddy Lupin and Victoire Weasley have taken advantage of their elders' inattention to find their way back into adjacent sea. Moments after Diaz lengthens Brazil's lead 60-20, Beta Santos hits Victor Crum hard over the head with his bat. The referee is examining omniocular footage to determine whether a foul has been committed. The game has been paused. A great groan has issued from the crowd, undoubtedly in response to Ronald Weasley flagrantly and openly kissing his wife on the cheek. This piece of disgusting exhibitionism appears to have disgusted spectators. <laughs> My colleague, Ginny Potter, has just informed me that the crowd groaned because one of the players has sustained an injury. No foul! German referee Hermann Juncker concludes that Rafael Santos did not mean to hit Victor Crumb around the back of the skull with his beater's bat. Crumb signals that he is fit to continue, and play resumes. Cold-hearted Hermione Granger did not notice her ex-boyfriend's injury immediately, due to the ill-judged public display of affection instigated by her husband, but she swiftly put on a display of concern. The same cannot be said for Neville Longbottom, who appears to be spiritedly describing the precise manner in which Crumb sustained his nosebleed for the benefit of his godson, Albus Potter. An oddly callous display from the popular herbology teacher. Mere seconds after play resumes, Crumb and Silver are rocketing suddenly upwards. 5,000 omnioculars follow the pair into the dazzling Argentinian sun. Dumbledore's army seem agitated and tense. Has one of them grievously offended the others? Have bitter wounds been reopened here in front of thousands of people where everybody hoped merely to enjoy a unique sporting occasion? Ought Dumbledore's army draw such flagrant attention to themselves when, apparently, something exciting is happening on the pitch? Or are they using this as a cover to air old grievances? Crumb and Silver are in a breakneck dash for the snitch, with Silver sighted first. He is four feet ahead of Crumb as both rise almost vertically. Everyone is on their feet, including the denizens of the VIP boxes. Harry Potter is shouting, Oh, if my lip reading is accurate, Ronald Weasley is swearing. Crumb is gaining on Silver, but will it be enough? Lupin has accidentally punched his girlfriend on the nose as he gesticulates. Are we about to witness a breakup live at the Quidditch World Cup? Crumb and Silver neck and neck! Teddy Lupin and Victoire Weasley snuggled up together again. Don't they care about Quidditch at all? Should they be taking up valuable space in this stadium when all eyes ought to be glued on the pitch? when so many poor witches or wizards would simply love to be here.
after two and three quarter hours in the blazing Argentinian sun, Bulgaria has won the Quidditch World Cup. And Crum has achieved his life's ambition on his third attempt. It looks like he might fall off his broom. Tears are streaming down his face. A hugely popular win here in the Patagonian desert. But a hearty commiserations to Brazil. They led almost all the way, and in the end, it was Crum the seeker who defeated them. A stunning display of sportsmanship here as Silver and Crum embrace. Oh, it's better. People are calming down. I can now see the VIP boxes. Well, Dumbledore's army seems to approve of the victory. Harry Potter in particular seems emotional. With a determined grin on his face, Ronald Weasley conceals his inevitable annoyance that his wife's ex-love is being fated by the Quidditch world. <laughs> Young Albus is applauding. Doubtless at the prompting of his publicity-hungry father. My colleague, Ginny Potter, is approaching me, no doubt with another tedious correctly. Peter oh, Skeeter has been taken unaccountably ill with what some are calling a jinx to the solar plexus. As celebrations continue here in the Patagonian desert, we at the Daily Prophet sincerely hope that you have enjoyed our World Cup coverage from Argentina. Next week, the National Gobstones League comes to Birmingham. But in all honesty, thank you. You have been listening to Quidditch Through the Ages by J.K. Rowling, read by Andrew Lincoln. History of the Quidditch World Cup by J.K. Rowling, read by Andrew Lincoln, and 2014 Quidditch World Cup content by J.K. Rowling, read by Annette Badland and Imogen Church. Quidditch Through the Ages text copyright J.K. Rowling 2001, recording copyright J.K. Rowling 2018. History of the Quidditch World Cup and 2014 Quidditch World Cup content, text copyright J.K. Rowling 2014. Recording copyright J.K. Rowling 2018. These recordings were produced by Pottermore from J.K. Rowling in 2018. They were recorded at Audible Studios in London with sound effects, foley and sound design by Pinewood Studios. Pottermore the digital publishing e-commerce entertainment and news company from J.K. Rowling is the global digital publisher of Harry Potter and J.K. Rowling's Wizarding World. As the digital heart of J.K. Rowling's Wizarding World, Pottermore.com is dedicated to unlocking the power of imagination. It offers news, features, and articles, as well as original writing by J.K. Rowling. Harry Potter characters, names, and related indicia are trademarks and copyright of Warner Brothers Entertainment. 15% of the proceeds from Quidditch through the ages will be available to Comic Relief and Lumos Foundation for their work with children and young people to help them have a better life. 20% of these monies will be used by Comic Relief and 80% will be used by Lumos Foundation. Comic Relief is a registered charity in the UK with charity numbers 326568.
England-Wales, and SC039730, Scotland. Lumos Foundation is a registered charity in the UK with number 1112575. Audible hopes you have enjoyed this program.